Hi, everybody. This is about as quiet as it's going to get in our studio, so we're going to start the show anyway. That's basically how we run our show. Yeah, good enough. Let's do it anyway. You're listening to Completely Beatles. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. Uh, we also do the Sneaky Dragon podcast. There, we got that out of the way. Yes. And we can move on now. Those of you listening to the show for the very first time, here's the way it goes down. Okay. Uh, we have been going over each Beatles album track by track. Uh, trying to do it as chronological as possible. And we also go over the singles and that sort of stuff. So this week, we are covering Let It Be with the singles Let It Be yes. and Get Back. Yes. And I am a casual Beatles uh, listener. You can't not have heard of the Beatles and live on this earth. Dave, you are more of a hardcore fan, you would say. Yes, I would. Would put myself. I would say I like the Beatles more than you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, it's not a contest. No. No. It the is. The Beatles don't want us to fight. Yeah. No. Over they, this. Do. no they do. No. Yeah, no. They, they just. Do. I don't think so. I think they're all about the peace and uh, the, everyone get along. So. <laughs> yeah. But fair enough. That's uh, what you say. What I'm saying is, Dave has done a lot more right. research on this uh, <laughs> album than, as always, he's got his uh, stack of papers mm-hmm. that, if they caught on fire, would kill us all. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully that will not occur. Yes. Now, we always start our episodes with context as to uh, where are the Beatles right now in their career, what's going on. Yeah. And so for that, I'm throwing you over to David. Okay, well, well, thank you. Well, this is, we were kind of talking a little bit before the show started, and I was saying that this is going to be a weird one, because I think people listening to the show are probably wondering which album was going to be next. Were we going to do Abbey Road, which, in terms of release order, came before Let It Be? Mm-hmm. Or were we going to do it truly chronologically and follow the actual when the album was recorded, which in every way, Get Back slash Let It Be was recorded before Abbey Road. And it was just the fact that it was such a disaster and such a a personally, such a trial for all the Beatles that it was held back, that it was uh, put off. It was a lot of procrastination and a lot of... This was considered a disaster in what respect? And a disaster, and an artistic disaster. I mean, obviously, really? the Beatles it's got so much on it that you would think <laughs> when you think of the Beatles, yeah. some of the 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 songs you go, mm-hmm. you know, you do. But Let It Be is on this album. Like any any mm-hmm. album, any, any sure. other album that had Let It Be on it would not be considered a disaster. Well, as we learned last episode when we're talking about Yellow Submarine, there really is no Beatles album that you can knock in terms of content. Mm -hmm. You can knock it for its context, for what's around it. You know, for say, if you think that Yellow Submarine was a ripoff because it only had one side of Beatles songs and the other side was orchestral, the orchestral score from the movie. You know, you might have a, you might have an argument there, but you can't argue about the quality of the songs that the Beatles Mm -hmm. put on that album. But universally, is this considered a disaster, this album? Yeah, I would think a lot of people would say this would be the weakest Beatles album, for sure. Okay, interesting. And even songs like Let It Be suffered from being on Let Let It Be. Like, they suffered because of the the situation, the context of of the album. Because, once again, you know, Brian was gone, and, you know, Paul had kind of taken over the reins of the Beatles. And I think that, I don't know if he wanted to do it, but it just kind of naturally fell to him because the person who had been before had been the de facto leader of the Beatles. And if you'd asked any Beatle up to the mid-60s who was the leader of the Beatles, they all would have turned and looked at John. Mm-hmm. John was the was the Beatle. You know, it was his vision that drove the band, you know, for a long time. And really, everyone else in the band by that point were Johnny-come-latelys. And John was the original. He was the original quarryman. He was Johnny Come First. He was Johnny he was Come the First. The only one called 
John. John. Yeah, so yeah. yeah. And so he was, yeah, he was in the quarryman. All right. That's right. He was in the quarryman and, 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 and Paul came to the quarryman after they had existed for a while. And then Paul brought George in. And of course, Ringo came much, much later. Right. So they, you know, none of them were, you know, all of them kind of joined John, you know, and so John was the leader. But when he went into his like major acid phase in the mid sixties, he really withdrew from, from any kind of role of, of position of power. You know, his songwriting slowed down. You know, so you go from like an album like Hard Day's Night, where he wrote almost every song on that album or had a hand in all the songs on that album, to Sgt. Pepper, where he was still writing great songs, but he was writing songs almost to order. You know, so he's like, okay, I need four songs for this album. What's a good song? Oh, here's a breakfast commercial. I'll turn that into a song. Oh, a circus poster. I'll make that into a song. You know what I mean? So he's just writing for that album. He's not creating songs just because he feels like creating songs unlike paul mccartney who's just you know this mad songwriter right. constantly writing songs writing so many that you know there's lots that he gave away to other bands or to other singers you know that were really good songs that the beatles didn't do that paul wrote and gave away just because he was so he, he had just hit this real purple patch that lasted quite a while from right. revolver you know up in, into the 70s i like paul's purple patch Everyone I, does. I just like that as a phrase you just like that as a phrase yeah it is an actual phrase. Some people have a blue period. Paul had a purple patch. <laughs> so by the time we got to the to the white album, it kind of changed a little bit. John had kind of he'd moved past his acid days, so the old John was coming back. So instead of the peace and love John, we had the sarcastic belligerent John was returning. But this John, you know, wasn't the John of old. He wasn't a Beatle anymore. He wanted to be a Yoko. He wanted to be with Yoko, and he that was. But that's what was driving him at the time. He just was obsessed okay. with this person. All his songs are about Yoko. All his thoughts are about Yoko. And everything he wants to do is... Now, how long have they been going out by this point? Not very long. I mean, they started going out um, around the time of the White Album. And was he still married at that point? Well, he, uh, he was married for a short time before, basically, Cynthia walked in on him and Yoko having breakfast together. Right. And he basically said, he just said to her, oh, Cynthia, we're getting divorced. Okay. So that was kind of a cruel... So like I say, the cruel John was returning. I mean, he always had yeah. that streak to him. He always was... Didn't even a, make her any breakfast. No, probably not. Probably eating the last of the cereal. <laughs> eating the last of the bacon. And uh, so like he so he wasn't really interested in fighting with Paul to, to for control of the group. Really, he was more interested in ending the group than anything. He just wanted to... He just wanted to like move on into this new phase with this kind of like, um, you know, this kind of art phase with with the sort of uh conceptual theater you know bagism and and bed-ins and all that kind of stuff like that that's what he was that's where he was going you know he was mad for a long time the beatles were like, cocooned in in the in the culture they were very safe and they right, reached a point where the safety net was taken away from them and john was arrested for drug possession and what was he in possession of uh cannabis okay and uh fortunately it wasn't a class a and um he uh so he was, you know, getting hounded by the right in Britain, but he was also being hounded by the left who were angry at him for revolution, for opting out of their violent revolution they all dreamed of. And so, you know, he was getting it from both sides. And his, his reaction to that was, I'm just going to withdraw completely into this kind of absurdist theater of, you know, climbing on stage in a bag or planting, you know, stuff that we would think is not being that crazy now, but at the time, like planting trees for peace. You know, which sounds kind of, at the time, was people were like scratching their heads and now we're like, what? I don't know, it sounds like a good idea. Yeah, but sounds all right. Yeah. At the time, people were like, yeah, what? Recycling what bottles, are you, what crazy are you man. <laughs> That's for peace. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then George, who had, um, he had spent some time in the States. He had like played live with the Dillian and Bonnie and friends. 
uh, who he met, I guess, through Eric Clapton and played with Bob Dylan in the band. And he was in these really convivial kind of, uh, you know, where you weren't just like a, he wasn't a sideman. He wasn't Junior George. He was a respected part of the band and oh, appreciated yeah. for his contribution, which he wasn't in the Beatles. No, no. You know? Any other place but the Beatles, being George Harrison is a big deal. Yeah. But you're in the Beatles. Hey, that's good Good that, for you. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, so he was kind of withdrawing as well. And then Ringo, good old Ringo, he was starting to get acting jobs. And his, he had a burgeoning acting career. And so he was looking at, you know, they're probably both kind of boring for him. Both involve a lot of sitting around. But in one, you have to play 100 takes of Not Guilty. Mm-hmm. The same drum pattern 100 times. Right. Or you get to be on set. takes of saying uh, not guilty yeah, that's in right. a courtroom scene. <laughs> exactly. So pick your poison. <laughs> exactly. But one, you get to kiss the girl. When you get to kiss then. the girl and you yeah. get to hang out with Peter Sellers and you know, doing the Magic Christian and, and stuff like that. Right. right? And so, if you're a huge fan of the goons, as they all were, mm-hmm. yeah. then doing a film with Peter Sellers is yeah. pretty amazing. And he had a major role and he played the son in the film. So mm-hmm. he, it was the, they were the, he was like the co-star. So it was a big deal for him. And so, um, a lot of nudity in that film, if I'm remembering. Am I remembering correctly about that? Magic Christian? Uh, you might, I don't know. I think I, can't I am. Remember. I, think. I think I am remembering that correctly. <laughs> I'm also, I'm also remembering it because, uh, he later, he soon after went on laughing and they did a lot of jokes about the uh, sheer okay. amount of nudity. That might have been Candy. John Candy? No, I no, don't no, confuse those candy. two at all. No, he was actually talking about the Magic Christian, okay. for sure. I don't, I saw it on TV, so that might have been cut out. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, so, <laughs> What? I'm just laughing. Laughing has always been on TV. Where no, else no, would no. you have I seen it? The Magic Christian. Oh, the Magic Christian. I, saw that I, I see. So. I understand. Yeah. Okay. Um. So yeah. So after the. T- so you know now we're after all the tense and difficult sessions for for the Beatles for the White okay. Album. You know, and when we listen to the White Album, we don't really hear all the strife and 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 uh, you know all the the ten- tension that went into that album. You know, but we know that they fought. We know that you know like. That Jeff Emmerich, who'd worked with him for a, a couple years, faithfully had quit because he just couldn't take it anymore. So we know that there was, you know, problems. Well, the, the album the sounds Beatles. like them going wildly off in all directions. Sure. Like when I when I hear when I hear you say that, you know, back even then there was, uh, you know, talk of them splitting. I can see them going, you mm-hmm. know, becoming more individuals than yeah. than a band. Then. So Paul's idea, his next idea, to, you know, to try and bring the band together mm-hmm. was for them to do a live show because Paul liked lo- playing live. Like to him, that was That's how they started. Yeah. And he felt that that was, you know, that they were a really good live act, that mm-hmm. they were a really powerful, great group of performers that really fed off the audience. And it, I mean, he's projecting his own experiences onto the others, of right. course. And that he just felt that's where as a band, that's where you get your power and your energy from is from playing live. That the feedback and the immediate sense of, of accomplishment, the Beatles were missing that because they'd just been in the studio and cocooned in this, uh, yeah, you know, little world. And you're saying that George had just come back from playing live yeah. and enjoyed it. Like he yeah. wouldn't, the, the Beatles, right. of course, stopped touring, as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, George is probably on board for that if he's, uh, if he likes the, uh, you know. Well, George was not interested in touring as a Beatle, though. Okay. Like to him, He'd done that, been there, done that, didn't want to go through that again. So, and Paul knew that. So he wasn't going to suggest that we do like a big tour. What he thought, what he wanted the Beatles to do was to rent, rent a space like the Roundhouse, which came up quite often, which was like a kind of smallish club in London for them to do like a maybe three night residency there, do three live shows. And then, you know, with all new material. So mm-hmm. they're not just doing like, not coming in and doing yep. She Loves Resistance, You and, and yeah. yeah, 
just doing the they're not tw- taking requests just doing their 20 minute long show from 1963 no they're gonna do like an hour long show all new music and you know maybe a few hits in the end but you know basically it's gonna be all new music and uh so yeah like you say george had just come back from touring doing a little bit of this and that and he actually enjoyed it he did and john had played live uh with uh, the rolling stones rock and roll circus for that film he played live in that and he enjoyed that too so it, they weren't averse to playing live. They just were averse to returning to the old grind of, of touring. Right. It also was ridiculous when they were doing it with the short sets and you couldn't hear anything. And yeah. And then, and then the idea of getting back, because, you know, not, not only did John, or Paul want to get back to life, but he also wanted to get back to the be, kind of the early days of their recording career. You're using the, the, the title of uh, one of the songs often yes. and often in what you're saying. Yes. You're and aware that, you're doing that, right? Yes. Very good. Just as Paul was aware when he used that term in the song that he was using a term that he'd already thought of for the title of the record. Mm-hmm. So, so he wanted to return to the simpler times, pre-overdubbing, you know, very speeding, Leslie-toned, all, you know, all the ADTing, you know, all that kind of stuff. They wanted to go back they wanted to get back to when it was, they record, recorded more simply. So the idea was no overdubbing, okay. no cheating. None it's going to be fancy, an honest, none of the fancy pants, an honest thing. record. And the Beatles, you know, they'd kind of done that with "Happiness Is a Warm Gun" on the White Album. They played that, they played that live in the studio. They learned their parts. They they developed they they developed it together. And it was a very tricky. Remember, we went through the time signatures of that mm-hmm. in the White Album, the first episode of the White Album uh, podcast, and it's. Super tricky song. And they really enjoyed it, though. They really enjoyed learning that song. And so they're thinking, well, that was fun. So we can, you know, have that experience with that. And then we can, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so, um, and then Paul had seen on television this documentary about Pablo Picasso. And it followed, uh, the creation of a painting by him. So from the, the, you know, slight sketches and little cartoons all the way to his, the finished, the finished work. And so then he thought, well, that would be interesting to do then. If like we filmed ourselves rehearsing the album and then, you see us working up towards this concert, and then then we'll have the live show, and it can be broadcast on television. So so and hey, Ringo, you like uh, you like being on the camera, huh? <laughs> this is part of that. So now he's got he seems to be covering a lot of the bases. He here. sure does. And so it was eventually decided there was going to be two TV shows, two hour long shows. One would be a nuts and bolts documentary of them getting the album together. Okay. The other would be the hour long live concert, mm-hmm. and that was you know so they they hired this guy named Michael Lindsay Hogg, who was an American director. And he'd worked on Ready, Steady, Go, but he'd also filmed the Hey Jude uh, Revolution promos and had been the director of the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. So he had a little bit under his belt in terms of, you know, filming or, you know, performances. And so they, they brought him in and he, uh, and I was, I kind of wonder if he was also brought in because the Beatles were afraid of giving Paul too much control in the project. So if we have a, a director, if, you know, it's not Paul directing this like Magical Mystery Tour, then, you know, we're not under Paul's thumb the whole time we're doing this. So, so, uh, and then, um, Dennis O'Dell, who was the head of Apple Films, uh, he had booked Twickenham, Twickenham Studios for the Magic Christian. So what he did was he, um, he pushed the, the booking forward. So he pushed it three weeks ahead. And so the Beatles could use that three week time to re- re- rehearse and then do the concert. Okay. So they didn't have much time because the problem was, is that, um, Ringo had already agreed a year before to do the Magic Christian and the filming started for that in the beginning of February. So he didn't have much time before his, he would have no more time to, to do the, the album. So, so now you can, can you kind of feel already where things are getting tricky? <laughs> Three weeks, mm-hmm. re- rehearsals, recording, concert. 
So, um, though they're always they've always been under the gun. Like they seem to do good good work under pressure. Yeah. With the you know al- mm-hmm. almost all the pre like the earlier albums, it was always we just got a few seconds to put this together, and they yeah. uh, and they all rise to the occasion. Sure. So, um, maybe a bit of their problem now is they have a little bit too much time. A little bit too much time to go do uh, your acid. <laughs> Take uh, the, those trips. Maybe, uh, maybe that's a problem. Maybe that's a problem when you got like all the fame in the world and uh, too much time. Maybe that is a dangerous combination for, let's say, anybody. Well, I would kind of disagree with you in the sense that I think that they actually push themselves harder in terms of the recording schedule after they were done their so-called two album a year okay. schedule. They actually, you know, they pretty much worked nonstop throughout the late '60s in the studio. There wasn't much time if you if you look at like a, a like a kind of a chronological calendar of their their activities. Mm-hmm. There's actually not a lot Most of time. Most calendars off. should be chronological. Yeah, by I guess the way. if your calendar isn't chronological, take it take it back. <laughs> you yes. don't want one of those random calendars. No. just oh, any day. Right. Any day will show up. Oh, I forgot about that meeting. <laughs> Christmas again. Uh, that was last week. <laughs> yeah. Um. So George Martin, he was kind of he was like he liked the idea of it. He liked the idea of of an album done entirely of new material, performed mm-hmm. live. He thought, you know, no one's done that before. And then he liked the idea of the, the kind of an, uh, the idea of the recording honestly, because I think he thought that it would kind of restore some discipline to what had become pretty loose, loosey goosey in terms of the, how the Beatles, you know, worked in the studio. Right. And at the same time, he also thought to himself, um, the Beatles doing brand new material, rehearsing it all over and over again. Ad infinitum, you know what? I got things to do. So mm-hmm. an, another guy named Glenn Johns was brought in. He kind of came in as as the engineer, kind of associate producer. And uh, so he um, he's quite well known. Glenn Johns he produced he produced like a lot of great albums, um, like the Who, the Who, Who's Next, and but um, he um, he came in as sort of he was called what's called the balance engineer. So he's kind of doing what Jeff Emmerich did. So he's not truly the producer, but because George Martin wasn't there a lot of the time, he kind of it kind of fell to him to make decisions as if he was the producer. The other thing is that he had um, he was a member of the filmmakers uh, union, so he could like touch wires and stuff in the film studio without causing a strike. Okay, right. So the, the Abbey Road guys couldn't like if the Abbey Road guys came yep. there and they touched like moved a cable, then it was consternation uproar because it was really it was you know Fred's job to move that cable. Right. You know? You know, so he had to walk over and, and move that cable five inches and then walk back down and sit down in his seat again. So, you know, so, but so the other guy can do this and bad luck for Fred. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. so Glenn Johns had some dark days for Fred. And then he'd also worked with the Beatles before. He'd uh, worked on a show called Around the Beatles. He had done the sound for that for the TV show. Wait, the is that TV the special. one where the Beatles were in the, the Beatles were in the round? Is that what you're talking about? Is that the Around the Beatles? Yeah, well you're saying around the Beatles. I know the Beatles did one show in the in the round that famously Ringo had to move his drum set in a circle oh, I think uh, slowly and it was very annoying. Uh, I think so you're thinking a, of actual live concert at like at uh, Shea Stadium they did I think they did that in the round. Okay, there's a different one as well. Oh, I was, was just actual, watching like, TV show? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was watching a I was watching a documentary on the Cirque uh you know, uh, love. love, okay, yeah, and it was called All Together Now, and they yeah. had a clip of them doing their in the round show, and they, they were talking about it uh, because they were going to be doing this show in the round, okay, and they went, oh, remember that when we had, it? and they showed a clip of Ringo, and 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 he just had to move his drums every so often, like a quarter turn, oh. and he was just like so annoyed by it, and there was no roadie helping him or anything, just his whole kit. No, I don't know that. Sorry, I don't know that. That's all right. So despite some resistance from some of the Beatles to the idea of a live show, mm-hmm. everyone was kind of on board with this. 
Okay, okay, let's go on. Yeah, with it, it sounds like a challenge. And that's when everything went to poop. <laughs> okay, because there was there were some difficulties. Like one I can think of is time. All right, like you think to yourself, when did they start planning this project? Did it come like a couple weeks after the White Album? Did it come like a few months after the White Album? No, it happened during the White Album. They started planning this next album. Okay. Well, the first thing is coming so close on the heels of, you know, it's essentially this gigantic song dump, which is the White Album. So they just poured all their songs into this album. And now a couple weeks later, they're supposed to have like brand new great songs that they're going to rehearse mm-hmm. and record and play live. You know. Is that a just, problem for uh, for Paul during his purple period that Paul, we're talking about? Paul had some stuff. Paul's covered. Paul had some stuff. All right. John, not so much. All right. George had some stuff, but. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about some of the problems. So there was a press release about live shows at the Roundhouse. The, the show was supposed to be December 15th and or 16th, 1969. And no, sorry, 1968. And it was going to have uh, uh, Mary Hopkins and Jackie Lomax would be the opening acts. And this press release came out on November 7th, 1968. So November 7th, 1968, right. the 24-hour crazy mega mix for the White Album. That happened on October the 16th, 17th, the 24-hour session of mixing that, mixing and figuring out the song order for that album. So, so they went to all, they stayed up, you know, a whole day working on that album. Two weeks later, they're already announcing the fact that they're going to be playing a live show mm-hmm. on the 16th, the 15th and 16th of December. This yeah. isn't even taking us into January. No, I hear you. And then the other thing is, is that, okay, November 7th, 1968, the White Album hasn't even come out yet. It's still, its release date is still two weeks away. So I just, it just feels like, you know, it's, I know Paul was worried and felt like there was cracks to be papered over yeah. within the band. But it, he's, you know, sometimes like, especially with a project like Sgt. Pepper, we saw there was kind of like an almost like a post-traumatic s- stress disorder where they're just kind of like just sort of working it out after it's all over with. And I f- feel that the same thing kind of happened with, with the White Album. There was just such a, a ginormous, you know, it took them half a year. They're fighting with each other. There's just this gigantic creative swelling and then all over with. And now you kind of you're you're sort of in the, the hangover of that, and now you're going to start a whole new project. I don't know. It feels it feels to me like when you sort of feel like the now both of us are in marriages that are strong, but it's like you're in a relationship that's going to break up, and you're like, let's just do the things that we did together that where we were happy. Yeah. So yeah. let's just do those things, sure. and let's not give ourselves time to think, because yeah. if we give ourselves time to think, we might split up. Yeah. So yeah. You oh, know, no, I can understand his thinking. Yeah, it, it just, makes sense. Be it too just, busy to fight. It just it it does it. You say that like it would work. Was what I would say to you. Well, I mean, because really, the it, option of like having too much time though could also you could look at it. You know, if if we didn't have this, they could you know go off in their own directions yeah. anyway, which is where they were headed. Yeah, I was gonna say they're just you're just putting staving off the inevitable, really. Right, but so. luckily you get a couple of albums out of staving off the inevitable, <laughs> which is not the worst thing in the world. So the other problem was, um, oh yeah, so just before I was gonna say, just before Christmas, 1968, uh, the Apple's press officer Derek Taylor released put out this press release it said the beatles would be performing live january 18th so now they had they had three weeks to to get there get it all together and get get it on get on stage and do it so the other problem was the place now i said that dennis odell had booked or had booked this studio you know a space in a big giant studio at twickenham studios so they're in this big large you know studio building and it was cold and basically just a big giant cavernous place and all they were going to do there was rehearsals they they had no intention to record like seriously record anything but they did have the film crew there and so because of the film crew the beatles had to change from their nocturnal 
their preferred nocturnal working habits to now having to be there at like shockingly at 11 in the morning and working till you All know right. well you know i'm very you know I, yeah I i'm know. very nocturnal so to <laughs> me here's what i feel it's like if you're the beatles yeah get the film crew to show up at night like the no, film, you couldn't get, do that though listen documentary let me tell yeah. you something union document. union rules would not would not you allow know what? that so. I, I would say that's nonsense because i think like <laughs> Uh, no, well, you say it all you I want. Do, I do because the listen. Is, if you're a documentary yeah. crew, documentary crew. They're not a documentary crew though. They're well, they're it? a film crew. They're just hired. They're a union. There's no. They're not like a bunch of right. And so you're there's saying no such thing. No. So you're saying no British films were shot at night. So if you look at any film from the 60s, no, they it's in the daytime. Have you seen James Bond films? Have you seen them with all the shadows everywhere? Uh-huh. There's no filming at night in those movies. Oh, seriously. Well, let me just say then. <laughs> seriously, that's ridiculous. Come on, that's ridiculous. These people had families. They needed to get home. No, they don't. They're doing they a thing to... with the Beatles uh, for what, like a couple of days? <laughs> Suck it up, is what I say to the, no. those people and their families. So... You know, what do you do? Where were you, <laughs> you were Dad? The... I'm with the Beatles. You're oh, so that's fine, Dad. Why don't you get me an autograph? And I'm happy, says daughter. You're the... Everything's fine. You are the least empathetic person I've ever To met. this silly situation, yes. <laughs> also, by the way, if you have a film crew in your in your, in your your space, it's going to warm up fast. Yeah. Because you've got light. So don't complain to me about the cold. Everything's fine. <laughs> And they're really, so cold. And they We're didn't, a coat. They didn't enjoy having the film crew like just staring down at them the whole time because they hated each other. You know, so they're working in this terrible situation yeah. and it didn't make it any better. Yeah. It, they didn't want to be there. Going with the idea now, of like a marriage that's failing, <laughs> let's bring a reality TV crew in to, to film us. Yeah. That's going to work let's out be well, Tori right? and Dean and let's bring in some people to film us and our loveless marriage. Yeah. It's just not going to work, right? So... <laughs> And yeah, that's the, the biggest problem was the Who was not the Who, the band, but the Who, the Beatles. Yeah. They were their biggest enemy in this situation. You know, yeah. I mean, you can say the film crew should get there earlier, but okay, there's union rules. No, later. I say they or should get, get there, there later. later. Yes. Or really early, like two in the morning. So whatever. Either way. But the right. Beatles also could just suck it up, Buttercup, and just do their and get, you know, be there at, at 10 and do a working day for for a little while. It's only a short time. They right. too can can change their their working habits. Sure, that's what happens. The person who's really successful, they're the ones that uh, bend. <laughs> I'm just saying, bend the knee. Yeah, that's I'm how that saying. works. Um, <laughs> but to me, like, so you know, for the Beatles, obviously, I just feel like it came too soon after the White Album All right. for them to be doing. You know, not just because of you know, not just. Be, I know, I know what you're saying is that yeah, they can you know they can move on quickly with their relationship and fill in time. But the other problem is the songs. Like there wasn't like a great well of songs for them. Like even Paul's songs, which are okay, you know, some of them are okay, some of them are great. Some of them are the but best songs he ever wrote. M- most of them are kind of half cooked in a way too. That they couldn't, you know, they just if maybe a little more time, they would have been really great. I guess. I, all right, here's the thing. I look at like albums now, and if you say you have one massive hit on your album, people go, "That's a great album." If you've got yeah. two, people nowadays go, "Wow, that's amazing." If you got three, yeah. then brother. This is one of the greatest albums of all time. And I look at this album and go, like, clearly there's at least three songs that people know by heart on this album <laughs> yeah. to this day. Yeah. You have one song, you know, like, Let It uh, Let It Be, that, like, is the song that brings the house down when you have a Paul McCartney concert mm-hmm. to this day. Sure. So if this is the failure, uh, <laughs> may we all be blessed with such failure. <laughs> Again, I, I, all these problems that you it's seem to failure. be giving me it's not are like non-problems. It's, it feels like it's, it's not a failure of the compositions. It's a failure of performance more than more than anything. Well, what's the problem with the performance in the? Well, let it be. It's just not performed that well. Like if you listen to the the musicianship, it's just not very good. 
John is playing. Who says that? John is playing like a ton of clam notes on his bass. Oh, like, is anyone who says that? Well like, I know you're saying that right now. I understand <laughs> you, as one gentleman, are saying that. But like, it, has that been the thing that's been said over time? Yeah. People, when yeah. they listen to "Let It Be," they go, "That's not that great a song." No, they don't say that's not that great a song. They, they say, go, "That's one of the, say, my favorite un- songs. That's the song I play at my it's wedding. That's the song you play at a funeral. This is the song. Once again, when Paul McCartney has a concert, yes. what's the one song you want to hear? Hey, Boom! No, oh, yeah, hey Jude, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, you know, uh, Hey Jude or this one. The, either one of these ones is the encore song. Nah, not, not really for me. Well, it's not for you. I'm just telling I'm you just what saying, the facts are. And, I, like, if there's an encore for Paul yeah. McCartney, it's one of those two songs. But I will say that in those performances in the concert, yeah. it's performed way better than it was on on, Let it, on the album itself. Again, we should all be blessed with <laughs> such failures. <laughs> so that's being so fussy. So fussy. It's, you know, you just have to, I mean... I'm just talking how the Beatles felt about it. I'm not okay. Saying, no, I that's mean, fine how they felt yeah. about it. But I'm telling the world. Here's how the yeah, world felt diff- about it. Of course, we love it we like can't. crazy. It's their yeah. favorite song. Of course, but no one is to choosing, this day. But yeah, but very few people are choosing "Let It Be" as their favorite Beatles album. Is it your favorite Beatles album? What favorite Beatles album? Yeah. How about "Let It Be" as your favorite Beatles song? I uh, know. I'm saying favorite Beatles album. We're talking about albums, not just songs. On your favorite Beatles, uh, Beatles. Jeez, sorry about my mouth. Uh, you know, I'm so upset by this that I can't even talk. <laughs> you continue for a while. Sure. Put so, it down, let it be. Crazy talk. <laughs> Am I wrong about this, everyone out there? I know there's a lot of hardcore fans I'm not who are listening to this and going, you're right, that note sounded a little flat. I'm not True, talking... But to the rest... Listen, yeah. when you're talking about the Beatles, yeah. you're talking about in, we're talking about in, in relative. I'm not saying that what they did was worse than what Daisy Day, or Do- Dozy Dave McIntyre <laughs> did. I'm not saying that they did better <laughs> stuff than the Beatles. All right, I think you're just making up words now. Right? I'm sure they're real. But okay. That's not what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm saying is in terms of right. relative what the Beatles were doing, uh-huh. Let It Be was a step down for them. Okay. You know? Okay. Of course it's still great. Of no, course no, it's still no. the I'm Beatles. Not even say, I'm not even like putting a big asterisk God. next to it. I'm saying these songs that are on this album are some of the are some of the songs that people, when you think of the best yeah. Beatles songs, sure. are present on this album. Yeah. It's too bad Paul hated it so much. I don't okay. care if Paul hated it though. The people so, loved it. So um <laughs> Yeah, but I mean yeah, okay. We can talk about it in a bit. We can. Let's We're not, gonna go. You know not, what I say? We do it track by track. Let's not knock it. <laughs> let's not. Let's not knock heads yet. So, un, so what? You know, the Beatles were kind of interesting. Like, so unlike other like fellow bands like the Kinks or the Who, mm-hmm. who like solved their problems by kicking each other or uh, throwing symbols at each other or having fisticuffs, the Beatles they preferred a much subtler, you know, sort of silent war with each other of sulking and long, you know, silences and glares, mm-hmm. you know, so they weren't really very good at working it out, you know, so all these things are just simmering resentments. They're not, they're not like, it's, there's very, very rare that they like exploded into rage, okay. right? So they're, you know, so, so they're not dealing with their problems. They're, they've just put themselves Not in a situation. Not that exploding into rage would be the best way to deal no, with your problems. But this at least it's concre- throwing a symbol sometimes situation, it can maybe cle- not the best. That's not the best either, but sometimes clearing the air helps. Do you okay, know what I mean? Okay, yeah. Let's all talk about this. Let's talk this through. No, they, sure. didn't, they didn't do that. They just sat in silence. This dysfunctional this family, yeah. you know, all kind of all kind of very mad at each other. Well, it's a British but way no one, you keep it inside. No one's saying, well, the British way, the who and the kings are British. Okay, well, yeah, the British way are one of two <laughs> things. One, passively keeping it inside until you, you know, explode. Or, to, or two, oh. fisticuffs at night at pub. Oh, it sounds like the British like it both ways. So, John was still in his honeymoon period, like we talked about. He's still in his relationship with Yoko. He's still completely, like, fascinated by her, obsessed with her, writing about her all the time, thinking about her all the time. They'd also started using heroin. So when you say, oh, the two of them. Yeah. So they were, you know, so 
John was in the middle of, uh, you know, heroin, which Uh is also a very interesting drug and takes a lot of your attention and a lot of your time. (laughs) Okay. You know, so rather than devoting that time to, say, writing songs. Heroin has a honeymoon period as well. (laughs) And then a a very non-honeymoon period. It's a very long bad marriage after that. It it really is. And There's uh, a lot of alimony to... So he was kind of withdrawing into this cocoon of sex and heroin. Okay. And in fact, so he had very, like I said, he had, unlike Paul, who kind of brought some stuff, he had very little in the way of songs. He had um, Dig a Pony. He had that kind of a, a little bit of, of Dig a Pony. Uh-huh. He had uh, an unfinished song that got incorporated into Paul's I've Got a Feeling. He had uh, a song called A Case of, of the Blues, which I've never heard. I don't I think he must have, it was rehearsed a little bit, it took in him. Uh, he had a song called Watching Rainbows that was also rehearsed, which eventually became part of Come Together. Okay. And then he had still had Child of Nature, which he had demoed at Kinfons before the White Album. So he's still kind of working over that, and they would never be used. It would eventually become Jealous Guy. And then he had Don't Let Me Down. And even with Don't Let Me Down, it was like this song of fragments that Paul had to put together for him, you know, to help get it. So you're saying heroin does not help in songwriting. <laughs> it does not help. If you, were effect, to pick, if you were to pick one of the drugs for songwriting, you would pick uh, uh, pot acid? or acid? Would pot you say acid? acid? Yeah, I think acid. Okay, so Dave, or pot. Or pot. So you would say, yeah. all right, so you're encouraging, ones that are, ones you're that are encouraging people to use pot or and al- acid. Or alcohol. Okay. Things that, are, things that don't sap your will, but, oh, but can take away, can relieve you of, um, can take away, like, um, I can't think of the word, but, you know, like, Stop you from blocking yourself. Can kind of let okay. just let you hang, let it all hang out. Yeah, get rid of your inhibitions. Inhibitions. That's that's the word. I was thinking exhibition. I knew that was wrong. Um, in fact, if you listen to some of the like re- the rehearsal recordings, you can hear John's voice cracking, which is like a real sign of heroin use because mm. it it I don't know why it dries out the th- like people's throats. It happened like Billie Holiday. If you listen to her like later songs when she was a full on heroin addict, right. her voice is very dry sounding. It has this real crack to it, and often happens with with singers. Uh, we don't we don't make a lot of moral judgments here, but let's just say, guys, don't use heroin out there. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Okay, and I'm not even big on the rest. Speed. Dave and I are pretty straight arrows on the rest of the stuff. We're a couple of real squares, but uh, yes. heroin, come on, come on, everybody, let's knock it off. Okay, and so um, yeah, speed also has that effect. By the way. Don't use speed either. So, um, and then, of course, we talked about George. Like, he's just, he's just being sick of being the sideman, sick of being the junior member of the Beatles. And, you know, and also being creatively stifled by Paul and, and John. You know, there is this paradigm that was, you know, that jo- Paul and John have equal songs. You know? Yeah. So, Paul has four songs. John has four songs. Or, you know, Paul has five songs and John has five songs. And then Ringo and, and George get the, the, the drippings. And so... You know, even though we have the situation where John comes in, you know, patently unprepared for, for this album, not with much material, George is coming with tons of stuff. You know, he's pretty much already written all, all of All Things Must Pass, his, you know, three, three album solo, first solo album. He's already got like a ton of songs that's, that end up on that already written and, and kind of demoed and sitting there. And none of them are, hardly any of them are considered. You know, because... Is that just politics? It's just politics within the band, right? Because Because Paul was scared of John, you know? He was scared of of he was scared of of offending him, of hurting him, of getting him angry at him. You know, the relationship wasn't like super healthy. Also, you know, he was kind of the junior member to John, and so and he felt that still. And so he would you know spent a lot of time placating John, to you know and sort of offending George and, R- and Ringo. And so you know George had songs like they rejected rejected at these sessions like something, all things must pass, isn't it a pity, 
we're all passed over for like For You Blue and I Me Mine, which, you know, are okay songs, but they're not as good as those songs. But the other thing which was interesting, which I discovered, which is that George actually in some cases withdrew the songs from consideration because he didn't like what Paul was doing to them. Okay. And he thought that he was being too heavy handed and, and yeah. wrecking these songs. And so, so that was a, a part of it. And then, like I said, Ringo just found it all kind of boring at this point. You know, it's just playing drums and or waiting around for the other members to make up their minds on what they're going to do. And, you know, he put up with it on Search and Pepper. He put it up, put up with it through Magical Mystery Tour and the White Album. But even by the White Album, he got sick of it. I mean, he quit. He yeah. was the first Beatle to like walk away and leave. You know? Well, it's the one place in the world that you're not special is in that room. Yeah, well, I guess it's part of it, but also just... You walk out of you that know, room and you're Ringo Starr, scream, yeah. scream, you're great, let's put you in the movies, let's do sure. all this kind of stuff. You walk into that room, hey, sit down, we're almost uh, ready for you. Yeah. Okay, now play the drums. But yeah, but if your creative outlet for him, which is the drums, yeah. you know, it's not that creative because you create your drum drum pattern and then you just repeat it endlessly, maybe with a few variations, but mostly the same Yeah. for, for the rest of the sessions until... You've re- you've rehearsed enough. Yeah, your for creativity it. peaks off the top, That's and then right. it's repetition. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and so the other problem was is the group was in no way prepared for the amount of work that they just set for themselves. You know, they had just spent a couple of years kind of doing their own thing, pleasing themselves. You know, and here they set themselves as this Herculean task, and they they called their own bluff. You know, and they did not enjoy it. They did not enjoy their bluff, mm-hmm. and the fact that they had a film crew watching them. <laughs> and that they had told everyone they're going to do a live show and that they had all these expectations around them. They were not happy with the situation. So, and then the last kind of thing, a problem was good old 60s drug-fueled megalomania. Uh, which on, effect, on, on whose part? I think just on the part of the oh, entire 60s, but on the part of the Beatles, you know, what started as the Beatles were going to do three shows at the Roundhouse, mm-hmm. you know, the same kind of spirit that, you know, made the Beatles want to buy a Greek island <laughs> or made John Lennon come into the Apple offices and you know, call a meeting, come into Apple to tell everyone that he was the Messiah, which happened, according to Pete Shotton, who was a friend of John Lennon's. Does he know so, what happened to the actual Messiah? <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. He Well, he writes about it in the Ballad of John and Yoko, right? Okay. I'm just saying. Um, maybe that's, you know, read, read ahead. Read to the end of that story. <laughs> so, so it all kind of led to the Get Back project to become more and more outlandish. So what started, like I say, with the Roundhouse, a couple yeah. of shows, then became... Well, how about a concert at a disused flour mill on the side of the Thames? Let's do it there. That'd be kind of cool. Or how about a concert on an ocean liner? Or a concert in the Sahara Desert? Or how about a Roman amphitheater in the Tunisian Desert? Any of those would be fine, <laughs> but all of those are terrible. But any of those would be fine. I would watch <laughs> but any you know of them. That, but you know yeah. what I mean, right? Like, yeah. So they're building up this cloud, this this giant project that is difficult, just just. The bare bones of it is difficult. Absolutely. So what you know? So they just throw extra things into their way. Like they're just throwing rocks into their path. Mm-hmm. You know. So oh, we couldn't do it because there's no way we could book. To, you know, in Tunisia, we just couldn't get the Roman amphitheater together. Like it's there's no way we can do a live show. No way. It's impossible because we can't book the Roman amphitheater in Tunisia. Like that's what you're basically doing to yourself when you start doing that, right? I don't know. And I'm then, thinking like, uh, what's playing the Roman uh, theater that night? In Tunisia. Well, probably nothing, but just... That's the, right. And who are you? The Beatles. So, uh, book it. <laughs> book Again, it. I don't see this it's being so a problem. I see, oh, I, it's I so easy I see no problem. I see no fly there. And, in and, a plane. And yes. Then, they're, yes. But here's the thing. George and Ringo weren't going to leave the country. So, oh, it's well, not going to work. No, you're not going to... Okay. <laughs> it's not going to work. Well, that is a problem. <laughs> it is a problem. Why weren't they leaving the country? Half of the, they didn't want to do it. 
Okay, well, that's a different situation. You than know, when people the, are talking, it's hilarious. It's not hard to fly the Beatles to, to the, another place in the world. If you it, listen to some of the conversations that, that take place during, like, during the rehearsals, they're talking about the ocean liner idea. And they're, you know, people are bringing up things like, you know, it's really hard to do to rent an ocean liner. It's, you know, it actually takes quite a bit of planning. You know, this show has to be done like in a, in a week, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, Ringo's gone. Beginning of February, he's not here anymore. So we, you know, so the idea of a Tunisian amphitheater, it's actually hard to do because you've got to do a lot of planning sure. to get a film crew and recording equipment and all that kind of stuff down to Tunisia and film it as the sun sets, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Why bands insist on despoiling classical sites with their music? I, I don't understand. Pink Floyd did that as well. <laughs> they actually did it. They didn't just talk about it. They actually played in a big, you know, kind of old. How was the concert? That's kind of boring. Okay. There. It's Pink Floyd. It has, okay, it has a moments. bold statement. It has a bold a, statement it has about Pink moments, Floyd. It's kind of Didn't boring. expect to have a lot of Pink Floyd bashing during our uh, Beatles podcast, but there you go. All right, I'm, bashing them, I'm just saying. Oh, just tell the truth. No. I'm a truth teller. Are you? I'm a truth teller. All right, fair enough. Tell, um, tell us more truths. So yeah, so they're talking about this ocean liner, and then George says, <laughs> "I love it." He says, "The problem with playing an ocean liner is after the concert, you're stuck in a boat with a bunch of people for another two weeks." <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> Which is true. That is an excellent. But I just point. love that. Yes, peace and love, George. Harry Krishna. Harry Krishna. Sorry, there were people. Sorry, that that were the sorry the smelly crowd of people surrounding you. You know what? Here's the thing about the Harry <laughs> Krishna. Let me tell you about this. You don't find them on a boat. You don't find them on a boat, do you, Krishna? When was a lot of boating? No, doesn't work. That religion doesn't just, work on the water. I just say that because that's how George would greet people at that time. Oh, I understand. Okay. Yeah. If you listen to the well, if, like they're on some tapes. People say, uh, "Happy New Year, George," and he says, "Harry Krishna," back to them instead of "Happy New Year." <laughs> anyway, saves you some time. So, on January second. The Beatles arrived at Twickenham Studios and immediately hated it. They, with, so they're going to be there for for three weeks, right? Yeah. And everyone arrived at 11, yeah. except for Paul, who was at that time taking public transit. So he got there at 12.30. Wait. Okay. So wait. <laughs> Paul's taking what? The, the, the subway bus. or the He's bus? He's taking the bus, yeah. So what? he gets there a bit late. Okay. Why is Paul taking the bus? I don't know. It's just the phase he went through where he was... He was every, I think Paul was he to, missing the magical mystery tour he bus? Liked, he liked to think of himself as just a regular guy. Oh, so you gonna take a bus? So I'm just gonna take the bus and be late. I'm not gonna be driven by a driver. I'll just hop on the bus and I'll be there. All right. I guess he didn't realize how far Twickenham was from St. John's Woods. Wood. I do. I do like that he's on the bus. Yeah. That's uh, that's all right. Okay. His, I'm, I'm all with that. his false mustache and his. Uh, did he really? Did he uh, actually know, do a disguise? But he no, I don't know if he did. Did he have a newspaper with two holes? Yes, in it? he did. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, like I said before, these were just rehearsals. Right. Although they were filmed and recorded, they weren't like properly. And they hated the place. <laughs> so now they were faced. Uh, so obviously faced with endless hours of, uh, you know, endless rehearsals of the songs. Mm-hmm. The Beatles did what they kind of normally did, which was this kind of fall back into this. Uh, um, they just kind of this reflexive habit that they had. So they started like doing studio jams, playing old old songs, like doing covers, uh, playing parodies of songs. Doing and you know, selling jokes and stuff like that, you know. So rather than doing the hard graft of like actually learning their parts, they would spend a lot of time goofing around, yeah, which is part of you know, but it's part of recharging. Absolutely. You just can't be constantly. That's part of who they are. But I think because of the unfortunate surroundings, like they couldn't really hear what what was good and what was bad and what they were doing. You know, so songs like "Something Come and Go" or "All Things Must Pass Come and Go" and other songs like uh, "Maybe I'm Amazed" was re- rehearsed and not used. Uh, "Give Me Some Truth," "Backseat of of My Car," "Another Day," all you know, all these songs that came on later albums were all tried out but just kind of kind of bulldozed over in this need to get on with it and there's the fact that oh my god what the hell are we doing and so uh the other thing that was making on the tapes 
were just like the many arguments that the Beatles had with each other <laughs> during this time. Because don't forget that it's not just the music, it's the business. Like Apple's falling apart. Right. Just before they were in the studio, John had made that famous statement that, you know, if things keep going the way we're going, the Beatles will be bankrupt. Which, by the way, was impossible with the mechanical royalties they were getting. But Apple was really bleeding money and they, it was a serious situation that needed some handling. But uh, so that was all going on. Eventually, the, the rehearsals broke down. And what happened, well, kind of, one was a falling out between George and Paul, because it was it was kind of just as simple as how they wanted to rehearse. Like, how Paul liked to rehearse was to start working on the song, and as problems came up, stop, deal with that problem, right. and then move on. But George wanted to do what she kind of learned working with Dylan in the band, where they would just they would just plow through, just to kind of get a general sense of the song, how it all worked together, and then kind of go back and then kind of fix it from there, or even decide if it needed to be fixed. Once you get to the end of the song, you might think, well, actually, that was fine. It worked it worked all right. So that was kind of where he was coming from. And then he just finally lost his temper with Paul. And if you watch the film, Let It Be, you, you can see the famous argument of George arguing with Paul and bringing up the fact that Paul wouldn't let him play the, the answering guitar line in Hey Jude. And he's still kind of mad about that, apparently. But so that's kind of become fallen down in Beatles lore as the day George quit the band, left, da da da. But actually, it's not true. They actually rehearsed for another four days. What happened was, George and John got into an actual fist fight. George and who? Sorry? George and John. Wow. Got into an actual fist fight. And, but no one's really sure why. They never said why. Some people suggested it's because George was really sick and tired of John's apathy. Because John was really apathetic during these rehearsals. He just was barely there. And often he would have Yoko speak for him. And George just got so that sick goes and tired. Over well, I'm yes, sure. Yeah. Right. And George just got sick and tired of this. And they just got into this huge fight. And then George just, he, he said, you know what? You might, you should put an ad in the enemy. I'm done. I'll see you around the clubs. And he left. Got into his car and drove off. At least he didn't get Yoko to fight for him. (laughs) True. True enough. And then, uh, so, apparently, Lennon was not impressed by George leaving. His response was to someone who said, well, what's going on? He said, well, he split George's instruments. So they, you know. And then he said, he suggested, seriously suggested that they just bring in Eric Clapton to do, for you know, to stand in for George. And then, uh, so they had a meeting at Ringo's house on the the Sunday after this fracas. And once again, John would not speak. He let Yo- Yoko speak. So Yoko was speaking as a Beatle. That's great. And George Fantastic. got upset again and yeah. he left. He actually drove up to Liverpool to his parents and stayed with them. And so they had, so they, they had a big meeting. They had a five hour meeting on the 15th of January. And George laid it down. He said, I will not tour. I'm not going to do a live show. I'm not going to do a TV show. So that's out. If we, if we want to keep doing the album, that's fine, but I am not doing a television show and I'm not doing a live concert. And so that was that. So the, it was shut. The uh, rehearsals were shut down, and they did kind of keep going even after George had left, actually. But it just devolved into this uh, crazy, loud blues jam that Yoko took over the vocals and was just doing the Yoko screaming kind of thing. I think I think and, uh, y- Yoko gets bashed a little bit too much sometimes. Yeah. But then sometimes, come on, smarten up. You, you know, think, like you, you get into yeah. you get into that kind of situation, and uh, you're speaking. Oh, that's that's just. That's just gasoline on a fire. That's just such a yeah. bad idea. I just think at that time that the two of them were just so had gone into this kind of defensive pit formation. Oh, I understand and, that. Yeah, I understand. Like that. I think I can see why it was happening, and mm-hmm. I think I think that she I think she was she was being unusually insensitive in the situation to how how she was affecting the group dynamic. Like I don't think as a person that she was usually that that tone deaf, but I think she was in this instance. 
you know, had a, you know, a majorly affecting how people were feeling about how things were going, you know? Right. I mean, even on the best of situations, like if you're getting along with somebody and then you're having a discussion going, I'm just going to let my girlfriend speak for me, <laughs> and, you know, instead, like on the, on the best day, you would just go, let's not have that happen. <laughs> yes. Yes. So now comes one of my favorite parts of the whole get back saga, All right. which is the Beatles decided, okay, we're not going to go, we're not going to be at Twickenham anymore. But you know what? We don't have to go to Abbey Road anymore. We've got our own studios. That's right. We got our electronic genius, our personal electronic genius, Magic Alex, Alexis Madras. He has designed for us not an 8-track studio like they have at old Abbey Road Studios, a 72-track studio. What? Oh, wow. That's oh, yeah. a lot more tracks. And you know what? We don't need baffles. We don't need like you know things put up between Ringo and the rest of us so that his drums bleed into our, into our mics. We don't need that. Because Alice is going to make, he's going to use sonic beams to create force fields, invisible force fields. <laughs> this shows how the 60s, okay. the problem with the 60s, so, where people uh, listen to these things. They're doing this in outer space. <laughs> people listen to this and believed it. That's the problem with the 60s. Um, and so when they got to the actual studio. Right. The force fields it, were not it ready. It did look nice. It had beautiful green carpeting in it. It had a fireplace in the studio. The studio had a fireplace. It's useful. Nice. <laughs> useful. Yeah, that's a and, good, good uh, idea. What, 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 it's great to have a carpet and a fireplace. That's also good. The Beatles had had bought themselves a, a 3M like eight track uh, recorder, so they had that there. Right. But uh, Magic Alex decided that wasn't good enough. He was going to build his own mixing desk, which basically consisted of an old oscilloscope with planks of wood holding it in place on a on a uh, this big kind of control desk that he had made himself with which um, the uh, Engineer who came in in the sessions, actually, Alan Parsons. Was, mm -hmm. He's kind of a famous, well-known producer. He produced Pink Floyd yeah. and uh, Alan Parsons' project. Yeah, I would them? assume, yes. The eye I, in the sky. Uh, completely. Yeah, that was him. So he, at this time, This was one of the first Alan Parsons projects. This is one of the very first sub... He was just the sub-Alan Parsons project because he was just the second second tape off right. right? So, But he says that it looked like he had built it with a hammer and chisel. That he'd built this control desk for, okay. for the thing. And he had like individual style. He had individual speakers for each track uh -huh. set up rather, rather than having just one speaker that could play back everything, you know. But he had like, so he had these giant speakers all around the studio and it was a mess. It was just a big mess. And so it basically caused two days of delay while George Martin had to negotiate with Abbey Road to have two four track mixing desks brought over from Abbey Road and installed at the, uh, in the Apple studios so they right. could actually record something. That they could hear because they tried recording on his desk and all you hear was hissing sounds. So it did not. I just want to hear more about the force fields. The <laughs> force fields. Um, yeah. Oh, the other interesting thing is between George quitting and the new the new sessions is the, Abbey, the Elsa Marine album came out on January seventeenth. All right. And how did how that do? They did well, great, of course. It's the Beatles. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, I'm just hearing all this talk of failure lately, and uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm concerned. One interesting thing about – I was joking about George not liking people because of his comment about that. But he's actually a really canny person with people. Like, he mm -hmm. kind of understood – like, one thing that George instituted very early on in the days of the Beatles was that they – you is that you rotated through roommates. So you wouldn't have mm -hmm. two people staying all the time together. You would yeah. – you would, and so he, may, he, he put that into effect very early on in the Beatles – 
time. And it's actually yeah, a smart idea, right? Because you don't end up with alliances forming and, and, you know, with two people who like each other always together all the time and closing out the other that ones. Completely and, makes sense. How yeah. soon before that whole roommate situation was not necessary anymore? I think they stayed as roommates for quite a while. Really? Yeah. I think that yeah, they you're liked doing that. well. You could probably get yeah. your own uh, room. I think that they, I think it was so boring touring though that they enjoyed oh, the, just fun. They enjoyed the familiarity. The yeah. right, and at that time right. they still were friends, right? So it was, sure. it was all right. So, um, I just so, like Paul's um, taking the bus. These guys are sharing a room. Uh, is everyone okay? Like it just all sounds like everyone's broke. <laughs> yeah. So well, you know, you had well, to save spend money. all the money on force fields. Had to save money somewhere. <laughs> that's your problem. A technology that comes a hundred years later. Yeah, that's going to be expensive. Okay, <laughs> that's right. So, um, so George knew that the Beatles needed something to keep them on their best behavior. Uh-huh. So, like when Eric Clapton came and did this the session for "Well My Guitar, Guitar Gently Weeps," and the band was like on their best behavior, super polite, did everything really great, you know. So he's like, we need something like that. So he happened to be, uh, went to see Ray Charles perform at the Royal Fest- Royal Albert, uh, Royal Festival Hall. And uh, he saw a friend playing with Ray-, Ray Charles, Billy Preston, who the Beatles met mm-hmm. in 1962 playing for Little Richard in Germany. So when they were in, when they were in Hamburg, they saw, they saw him there. And so they became friends. And so he, he sent a message to, to Billy Preston to give him a call. And so Preston gave him a call and, and George said, why don't you come on down? We're, you know, at the Apple Studios. Come on down and you can, we can jam. And so Billy Preston showed up and they did like actual jam. They just kind of played some old, old time oldies and stuff like that. Just kind of went through some rep- old repertoire and they had a lot of fun. And then he was invited to stay for longer. And so he did. He just stayed for the rest of the sessions and having him there had that effect. It really created, you know, it nice. really kind of calmed down all the fighting and stuff like that because there was someone there who you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of. So, you know. It's a lot different how families behave together than they do with guests in the house. That's and right. A similar effect. And uh, also what was good about him being there is because they were following the strict no overdubs rule, it was good to have a fifth instrument, you know, that could kind of add a little color to the songs. So that was another good thing about him being there. We're, we're going to get probably into a lot of just family dynamics. Like it seems to be talking a lot about a family <laughs> yeah. right now because that's yeah. really what, yeah, it what, it, what it was. For sure, yeah. You know yeah. It, you know what it really is? It's like, and I've, I've been in this situation with actual other things, but like it's a family business. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. business, sometimes it's family, but yeah. you can't just treat it like a business yeah. or the family aspects are all going to go to hell if you can't just treat it like a family because there's money involved as well and we can't just hang out and have a good time. That's right. So yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very different dynamic with this kind of thing. I'm still so glad you like the force fields. That's my favorite story for the whole Oh, I event. love the force fields. Don't worry. Don't worry, Ringo. We're going to put a force field between you and George. Which, you know what? Hey, if, if a couple of guys are fighting, maybe pop the old force field in between those guys. Break it up. Yeah. Nice. Passive way of doing things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. So um, so now, despite both Harrison and Starr not liking the idea of performing so much, it was actually John's idea to... to because they needed a final performance because they were still filming. They were still being filmed when they were at Apple Studios. Yeah. They hadn't really given up on the idea. Of, they just were going to do a TV show. Now this was going to be a documentary. And uh, they didn't realize it was a documentary about a band breaking up. But it was going to be a documentary. Meanwhile, the documentary crew or a film crew yeah. is going, all right. You know, this is a dream. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, yeah. you know, what's the angle on this? Are we just filming? Oh, 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 okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here we go. But they did need... They Clearing need... the shelves for awards. <laughs> they did need a climax for it, right? Yeah, of course so, you do. So, so it... either the band completely breaks up or, or... we've got to have a big concert at sure, the end. That's right. Those are the only two options available. Uh, yes, exactly. And so it was John's idea that they just go up to the top of Apple, Apple offices and just perform on the rooftop. Right. So then at the very end, all of them jump off. <laughs> big finish. And so <laughs> he, and, he and Paul had to like kind of cajole the other two into this idea because they were not into it. 
And really? Yeah, no, that's, okay. yeah. that sounds seems cool. One thing, it was January. So you're performing on a roof in London well, in January. Well, big, okay. Again, these seem like non-problems. <laughs> like, I've seen them. They're all got coats. I just want like, to say... Like, they're not coatless gentlemen. I just want to point out that Ian doesn't play guitar. So he has no idea what it's like to play... Uh, wait, but you're saying Ringo is complaining, right? No, all of them are complaining. Oh, I know, but is yeah. Ringo's Ringo drums... Has he got uh, drum issues, like, in the cold? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> so then... It's cold. Ugh, crying out loud. Uh, all right. Now, if you have you seen the rooftop concert? Yes. So you know that Paul was right. What the Beatles really needed was to play live together. Because mm-hmm. you will never see a group of people looking happier than they do performing in that yeah, in the concert great. footage. It, they are so, it, it's fantastic But to now watch. I'm sorry to hear they're so cold. They oh, were cold, yeah. They're really cold. John comments. He says, this is hard. He says, you know, it's hard to get your fingers around these around the, no- the notes because it was a windy day and it's January. Yeah. So. It's difficult. Yes. Yeah, it's it hard. Look, I, the, I get that you don't want to go to Tunisia. I get that you don't want to go to Tunisia. I guess you don't want to go to the boat. But when oh you complain, like, let's not go to the roof. I got to go up a flight of stairs. <laughs> shut up. Just shut up. Just go up there and play a song or two uh, or a couple. Crying out loud. So, boo. So then, uh, so they did the performance. Yes, and it was fantastic. And unfortunately, it wasn't that public. I mean, it was sort of public in that people could look up at a roof and, and hear them, but they couldn't really see them. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's some people who climbed out of windows and got into roofs and stuff. Well, to watch I'm sure, them, like, but... I'm sure, you know, they were so famous that people would be walking by the studios and they'd like just to see, walk by the studios just to see the studios. It'd be kind of cool. Well, they would be walking by the offices, Apple offices. Oh, it's just the wasn't offices. the studios. Yeah. Ah, well, there you go. Then. And you couldn't see the studios. You can't. No. Why not? Is there a force field? Oh, no, no. I just... <laughs> No, you can't hear them. Is there a hologram? The they put up the I just mean you can see the building, but you really can't see anything happening. I mean, you can go I stare know, at a building you all st- you want. You can, and as, if you're a teenage girl, you probably would. Oh, like, well, go they stand did. Outside. They did. Yeah, wait, Believe me, they did. Maybe someone's going to walk outside. Believe me, they did. All right, so they're on the roof. Uh, some people are sticking their heads out. Looking. Yeah, but so I just mean it's too bad that it wasn't like a truly public performance where that there was an audience t- to watch them play. Yeah, though luckily it was being uh, film. filmed. So that's fine. And so then uh, the next day, they did another concert of a sort. They just went in the studio and they played all the songs for the album that couldn't be performed in a like on a rooftop. Right. So they did "Let It Be," "Long and Winding Road," and the acoustic "The uh, Two of Us." Yeah, they went down where they've got the nice fireplace. That's they, right. They yeah, were the fire, warm. Crackling time, away. That's good. Yeah. Crackling away. What's that sound? I'm there's, picking up a weird crackling. Yeah, noise. there's someone, a cat purring in front of it, just a little snuggled up. It's really uh, comfortable. And they got the fire put out, and then and then they were like, "It's still the fire's still burning, is it?" <laughs> no, someone's opening a candy wrapper near a microphone. <laughs> um, now. So six weeks later, Glenn Johns was, was you know, called down to Apple. He went down there and, well, actually called Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. And John and John and Paul were there and they pointed at a big giant pile of tapes and they said, remember you said you wanted to make an, an album? Well, there it is. Have fun. So it was his job to sort through all, all these hours of, of, of uh, sessions and rehearsals and record, you know, recording stuff like that and find and kind of put together an album out of this. And so, oh, my voice is cracked. I my heroin use is coming. <laughs> and um, I thought I didn't, didn't think I counted for talking. So, um, Are so, you cold, by the way? Are you okay? Is it too cold? <laughs> <All right. laughs> My fingers are numb. Uh, so, so John's made, he, did, he actually ended up doing two different versions of, of the album Get Back. And we'll talk about that as we go. So each one being rejected by the Beatles. Because right. they were just shocked by how, the raggedness of their playing. Like They just listened to it and they went, is that how we sounded? <laughs> Oh, my God. But, you know, if they'd gone ahead with their original plan of filming themselves playing live, it wouldn't have felt that way. It would have felt like, boy, that was a really good live concert. Yep. You know, because how you hear something live is a lot different than how you hear it. Like, if you listen to a band playing live, 
if a band playing live sounded like they sounded on a studio album, you would throw that album away because it just does not sound that great. It, it sounded they have trouble hearing each other. The instruments go to tune. You know, it's just that's that's the nature of, of live. You know, they throw a few bum notes in, but you know, it's you know, it's okay because it's exciting because it's live. It works yeah. in that situation. Six months or six weeks down the line, how it sounds to you is a lot different, right? So um, now, okay, this might be way too detailed for some people. Wow, on this show. <laughs> Holy cow. Wait a minute. Okay. This is the show. Hey, everybody. Those of you that have listened to previous uh, episodes where Dave lists the sound effects numbers <laughs> from the Abbey Road studio. Let me just say, if you're okay with that, mm-hmm. now here comes stuff that might be a little too this technical. Might be, this might be too detailed. Okay. But I'm going for it. By the way, all right. Here we go. Okay. All because, right. Okay, here's the thing. Because multiple tracks were used for the different versions of both Get Back and Let It Be, because they're two different albums, I just thought it would be helpful. <laughs> Just to do a day-by-day recounting of the sessions because they weren't that long. <laughs> okay. They weren't all that long. Seriously. All right. All right. Okay. Okay. So it started on January 22nd. That's uh-huh, when it started. Okay. It was cool. supposed to start January 20th. Right. The first fields weren't ready. So it started 22nd. So from the first day of recording, Glenn Johns used uh, quite a few songs for the Get Back album. He used Don't Let Me Down. He took it from the very first day. Uh, Lennon saying, we'll do Dig a Pony straight into I've Got a Fever. Uh, he t- also They did a brief instrumental called Rocker. Or which was described as rocker by Paul McCartney when he went through the file or through the through the uh, tapes, he used that and also a kind of a sloppy cover of the Drifters' uh, 1960 hit "Save the Last Dance for Me." Okay. So he took all those from the very first day for the for the Get Back album. On January 24th, uh, two of us was the 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 their 24th. He didn't use anything from the 23rd. That's why I didn't include. 24th, he used uh, two of us from on Get Back. Maggie May was performed this day. It was used for on both the Get Back albums and on Let It Be. Mm-hmm. And also, John saying, that was, in his little voice saying, that was Can You Dig It by Georgie <laughs> Woods. And now we'd like to do Hark the, the Angels Come. That was also from that, that, that session. All right. Dig a Pony and I've Got a Feeling were also included on Get Back from, from this day. From the 25th, uh, George's For You Blue was used on Get Black. Sorry, Get Back. Mm-hmm. And then after some further editing and remixing, it was used on Let It Be. Uh, from the 26th, uh, jo- an edit of John's Dig It was used on both Get Back and Let It Be. And it was originally 12 and a half minutes long, so both albums use an edit for it. January 27th, Get Back from this day was used to close out Let It Be. So it wasn't, a, it sounds like it's a live version, but they just did a little bit of tape, bit of editing to fool you. And also from this day, uh, Lennon's Sweet Loretta Fart. She thought she was a cleaner, but she was a frying, frying pan. Frying pan, I like that. A little one. bit of parody as usual. And so that came from the 27th. From the 28th, both sides, they were as well as rehearsing uh, one after nine oh nine. They also finished. They recorded and got everything. They like recorded, get back, and don't uh, let me down for the single. So that was all done in this one day. That was kind of the good thing about this, you know, no overdubs kind of style was how quickly they were able to like work through songs. Like for you, blue was six takes. There, it's done. It's on an album, right? Unfortunately, they weren't very happy with how it sounded, but it was on the album. Um, unlike Ian, who thinks it's a brilliant. Uh, Mona Lisa. We'll get to that. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so, and then uh, 37 seconds from, because the get back version on the single was faded out. It was actually kind of uh, quite a bit longer. Okay. And so John took a little bit of the end of it and he put it at the very end of, of his, of get it back. This, or get back was kind of let, you know, get back reprise. So it just kind of fades in and then fades out again. And then uh, January 30th was the rooftop concert. And so quite a bit was used uh Made it on both albums. So one after nine oh nine was used for both Get Back and Let It Be. Um, it featured John Paul and John's comments after the final version of Get Back. 
uh, Paul thanking Ringo's wife, saying, thanks, Mo, and then John making his famous addition joke. And th that was all from that concert, though. And then, uh, and then, like I say, after the rooftop concert came the studio concert. And so um, take 19 of The Long and Winding Road, take 27 of Let It Be were used on Get Back, as well as some of the dialogue that occurred before take 23, which was John saying, are we supposed to giggle in the solo? Which he asked John before he started playing, or Paul, before he started playing Let It Be because he hated that song so much, and Paul says, yeah. So that was used for on the Get Back. And the Let It Be LP used uh, Take 12 of Two of Us, Take 27 of Let It Be, and Take 17 of The Long and Winding Road. Now, like I say, there were three different versions of the album, because Glyn Johns was asked to, to, do the, to compile the first one. So on May 28th, he compiled and mastered his first, you know, first try at the album. There was an acetate that was made before that, but it was just like a, so the Beatles could hear the songs. Right. You know, so this is like his first, like, this is going to be the album. So it starts side one, one after 909, Don't Let Me Down, which also had elements of rocker and Save the Last Dance for Me in it. So it's kind of like his albums use way more of the session stuff, uh, like, like them talking and rough and kind of false starts and things, which I really like. I like, I like, I like those, th th that element of his, of his albums. It's kind of fun to hear them talking, of them starting, of even like, a, like rocker starts with like the tape. The tape was turned on after the song started, so you get that kind of sound, you know, as it, then the song starts playing. So stuff like that. It's more more audio verite, and I really like that. So um, so yeah, dig a pony. I've got a feeling. Get back. And then side two is for you, blue, Teddy boy, which was actually never obviously never used on that on let let it be, on our way home, aka two of us. Yeah. Dig it and let it be. And then, and the dig it that he used in that was actually a longer edit than the one on his second version. All right. Let it be. And then the long and winding road finish, which I don't really like that. I don't like the tracking that much. Like, I think, uh, starting it with one after 909, I don't really like. I don't think it's as strong an opening as two of us. I think that's actually a better opening. And then having both let it be and long and winding road close out on side two, I don't like that either. Do you think they're too similar? I think they're too similar. Yeah. 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 I, I wouldn't disagree with that. Yeah. I think you need. Like you could put "Let It Be" and then have "Get Back." Like maybe a one-two punch at the end of side mm -hmm. one would be good. And you know, I just there's just other ways to work it. So now, as part if of if you the, want Dave to make you a mixtape, he will. <laughs> as well, I have this. I have a. I have a bootleg of this album. Yeah. Um, with the original cover idea, because the original cover idea was brilliant. Which was uh, what they decided to do was recreate the original photo shoot from the first album. And they even got the original photographer Angus McBean to come, and he took the same picture. <laughs> Fantastic of them. name. Yes. Yeah, had took the same picture of them leaning over there, really yeah. looking down. That was on the first album, and uh, and then they were going to have the same. You know, had get back, and then it said, um, "Say get back," and then uh, with "Let It Be" and eleven others, eleven other songs. The same way that it said, you know, "Please Please Me" with "I Saw Her Standing There" and eleven other songs. You know, and so now it wasn't wasted because we know it from the red and blue yeah. albums, right? They actually they used it on the blue album later but that was originally was supposed to be for the get back album cover that's what it was originally designed for and john was like he was the one who was most into it he he was like really careful making sure everyone was in their original pose yeah and stuff like that well he looked the most different so it's coolest for him yeah maybe yeah. that's it yeah and it's interesting because the first one is 62 to 66 and the next one is 67 to 70 and really it's 63 because album that picture was taken in 63 and the other photo was taken in 69. So that's six years. And that's the difference between those two pictures. It's pretty, that's pretty what, amazing. That's what will uh, happen to you if you, <laughs> you live that life. If you grow your hair long. Uh, also, just grow your hair long. Too. Okay. So <laughs> so now, um, so now in, okay, in June of 69, they said the album's coming at any time. Uh -huh. We've had some problems with our lavish book that we're going to have with the album. Right. And so we've had some trouble getting the book prepared. And so... 
we're going to have an August date. August date. And then that was shelved. Not going to have an August date. Then in July, we said, uh, we're going to have a, we're going to have a new album. It's called Abbey Road. It's going to come out before Get Back. <laughs> like Get Back is going to come out in November to coincide with the release of the film. So then we'll have, then it'll come out in December and it'll be out for sure in the new year. Okay. So with the new year in mind, they came back to John's and said, we need you to make a new mix because there's uh, songs that are in the film that aren't on the, on your version of the album. So we need those incorporated. And that probably Paul came to him and said, and by the way, Glenn, I've just recorded Teddy Bear for my soul or Teddy Boy for my solo album. So take that one off. So, okay. So he took that off. So he compiled a new one, which started again, once again, one after 909. Not a good start. <laughs> Don't let me down. It's very similar with elements of rock. Yeah. Dig a pony. I've got a feeling. Get back. But this time he put let it be as the end of side, as end of side one. And, uh, this one had George's overdubbed solo on it. So he broke the rules a little bit. But he wouldn't use, well, I'll talk about it a little bit. So <laughs> side two is For You Blue, Two of Us with Maggie Mae. Of course, Maggie Mae was on both. I forgot to mention Maggie Mae last, last time because I don't see why it's listed. It really shouldn't be listed. It's just an interstitial. It's kind of a linking track between songs. But anyway, Dig It, which was now a three and a half minute long version. The Long and Winding Road, I Me Mine. So this had to be added because it was featured in the film. And so it had to be record. It had to be recorded. He was doing this. He mixed this on January 5th. I Me Mine was recorded by the Beatles in their very last recording session on January the 3rd, 1970. So it wasn't even recorded as part of the Get Back stuff. They actually had to do like a, a new recording for it in the Get Back style. And so that was added. Across the Universe was added because once again, it was shown in the movie. Okay. So they wanted it to be on the album. And then it ends with the uh, Get Back reprise. This is a little 37 thing. So now, although Lennon liked, uh, the, he liked how it sounded. He liked the honest sound of it. In a way, he thought it was you know, revealing the Beatles for what they were, which was, we sound like crap, he said, you know? And I want people to know that we sound like crap. I want us to be honest with how we sound and not mm -hmm. faking it with all the studio trickery. People should know that we're just not that good anymore. Now, is he saying this or is Yoko saying this for him? I don't know. I yeah, think I think it's honest and we got to speak wanted... for ourselves and have truth. Uh, Yoko, say that uh, to everyone yeah, for me. Because he wanted the band to break up. That's why, That's you know, but he, so he was happy with John's version, but he wasn't happy with the fact that Glyn Johns wanted to get a an, a producer credit for the album. He's like, why? I think he's probably sticking out for George Martin. Why should you get it? producer credit? George produced it. He really should have got an associate producer credit, though, to be honest. Because when, like, when Get Back came out, the single came back, came out. There's no no producer listed on it because it was who produced it: George Martin or Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns was there way more than George Martin was at that time. Mm -hmm. So it should have been Glenn Glenn Johns, but George Martin was still nominally the producer, so it should be George. So it was you know they just put no one's name. So uh, now the thing is, is that. The others didn't like how it sounded still. Like they just were not happy with the sound. And I think because more than Spectre, what Glenn John stuck to the original idea that was going to be like no overdubs, honest album. Um, sometime January 4th, the Beatles got and George Martin went to the studio and they recorded a string and brass overdub for Let It Be and a new guitar solo for, for George. So now the song had two guitar solos on it, mix and match and strings and horns. And they gave that to, to Glenn Johns and said, well, you can use this version. And he wouldn't. He he did use the, the the one with the guitar overdub, but he just felt like that was going too far. Like it was just wasn't, you know, it was just wrecking the idea of the album to have suddenly have a song with with strings and, and, and horns on it. So he didn't use that version. He kept using the older version. And I think that that kind of, um, I think that kind of was his downfall. You know, he just wouldn't, you know, if, he just wouldn't allow pretty sounds onto the album. He wanted okay. it to be a rough and ready kind of a rocking album. Whereas when Phil Spector... You know, so then Phil Spector came onto it. So what happened there was 
because Ellen Klein had kind of come into the Apple organization and started, you know, firing people left and right. Um, but he was a friend of Phil Spector's. And so he recommended Phil Spector as a producer for John for Instant Karma for the Plastic Ono Band. And so John was really impressed with the job that Phil Spector did. And of course, he was an admirer of Phil Spector from his days, the Wall right. Sound and producing, you know, the Shirelles. Was it the Shirelles? Whatever. Producing, no, that wasn't the Shirelles. I'm totally wrong. Producing the Ronettes and okay. uh, producing like... Uh, You're the not right the first person to confuse those two. It's the Righteous right. Brothers and, you know, the Ike and Tina Turner's uh, River Deep Mountain High, which is a brilliant song. And it's probably a mountain high, river deep, but that's okay. But anyway, um, so he, one is high, one, one is, is low, one is deep. We just don't know. Yeah, we don't know. How would you know what's high, a mountain or a river? It's hard to tell. One could be. It's it's confusing. It's don't worry way. about it. You know, you can't see. If there's a cloudy day, you don't know. You have no idea. Um, so so he um he gave the tapes to Phil Spector. He and George gave the tapes to Phil right. Spector without telling Paul or George Martin this was being done. They just gave it to him and said, "Good idea, always, yeah, yeah." <laughs> Do if you're it, having problems, see, a lot of secrecy, a lot of uh, doing stuff without people knowing, always a good idea. See what you can do with this, and good luck to you, yeah. sir. And so the first thing that uh, Phil Spector did was throw out the whole honest, get back, no overdubs idea. He just, nope, that's not for me. He just got rid of that whole idea. You know, he took uh, The Long and Winding Road, Let It Be, we'll let it be already had it, but The Long and Winding Road, I Me Mine, and Across the Universe, and added strings to them. Mm -hmm. So we kind of changed the whole, and not just strings, huge strings, huge strings, like... Like a gajillion people performing. Okay. He did have a he did have a beetle on it because he used Ringo for the for the drummer for the sessions. But it was just like you know eighteen musicians and a choir, you know. And so his version was uh, two of us, better opening. I dig a pony across the universe. I me mine dig it dig it only forty one seconds of a dig it though. Let it be with once again Maggie May, which was kind of John's little joke to have this sort of very quasi sort of gospely song followed by a song about a prostitute. And then I've got a feeling. Side two, sorry, with I've got a feeling. One after nine oh nine, the long and winding road for you, blue, and then ending with get back. A really well programmed album, I think. Like I think if you, that's yeah. It's even though I like like the kind of rough elements of Glenn John's versions with like the talking and the false starts and 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 the studio chatter. I must say that I think that it was programmed better by by Phil Spector. All right, that's the context. <laughs> All right. How long did we go with context? Was this our longest context ever? Um, let's see. Well, it's pretty long. We we did have a little bit of a break, but okay. But how long? Would let's you say, say it's for around an, around an hour and ten minutes. <laughs> that is a lot of context. Okay, That's a lot of context. Fair enough. I'm uh, sorry, everyone. It's just because it's because the history of Get Back is more interesting in a way than the actual music on sure, it. Sure, sure. No, I understand because it just went on and on. Like to me, when I li when I listen to it, uh, the way the, this goes, Dave gives context, and I usually uh, give, "Hey, how do I feel about it, man?" Yeah. Anyway, is that kind of thing. Uh, to me, what it felt like was. Uh, the theme in this one, like in, uh, the theme in, you know, Sergeant Pepper was the psychedelic circus comes to town. Yeah. Uh, the theme in other ones has been you're going on a trip. And yeah. this one feels like everyone come back home. Like it, there's actually literal references to go home, come home, we're going home. There's a yeah. lot of that yeah. in this. And, and there's also feels like a lot of comfort music. Yeah. Uh, everyone's in their safe zone. Everyone's doing the kind of stuff that they care about and they feel safe uh, doing. And uh, when you're mentioning to me that it feels like the group's br breaking up, what do you crave when something like that's going on is the comforts of home, yeah. what things used to be like. Sure. I, I long for the past because the present isn't... Well, I don't think looked, if you listen to the... The future looks not super great right yeah. now. I think if you listen to the record, you, you don't hear a band 
breaking up. You hear a band that's the Beatles being the Beatles, you know. Right, but great. it feels nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a nostalgia in, in this uh, that isn't in a lot of the other but albums, if, but we can go track by track. If you look at that. the cover of Let It Be, uh-huh. you, you think, oh, this is a band who's breaking up. Why is that? It's black, it's mourning, and it's all four of them are separate. And It's not an image of them all together, it's four separate images. So it implies right in there that there's it's over, you know? Oh, all right. I guess you could take it that way. Unlike the Get Back one, which was them kind of revisiting the past, but in a sort of lighthearted way, them recreating the past, you know, but them all together in the picture, the Let It Be album cover, it's all black. It's all, it's all, uh, yeah. Well, we just, we, we were, and, I mean, the, the last proper album was the white album, so I could see how they go to black from white. I could see that. I mean, admittedly, Yellow Submarine's in between, but that's really just the and film. And so is Abbey Road, but yeah. Okay, and there's Abbey Road <laughs> yeah, with yeah. crossing this one. Yeah. All right. All right. So uh, let's go track number one. Sure. On this. And track number one, that be... Two of Us. Two of Us. Also known as On Our Way Home. That was the original. Yeah. This one sounded a lot like uh, uh, Harry uh, Nielsen to me. Okay. Yeah. Like I would say, I I could, I could listen to this. Like if you put this into the point and had this, like a song uh, about the kid and the dog and slipped it in there, I would not, uh, it would not be jarring to me. He sure liked the Beatles. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, they they liked him as well. Am I am I incorrect about well, that? Well, they certainly were complimented by him because they were given his his first album by Derek Taylor, um, and it had a a version of you can't of you can't do that on it that incorporates twenty different Beatles songs into it. Mm-hmm. So, and then also did she's leaving home. So you know, there's a lot of you know. So when you say I really like that guy's album, what you're saying is I really like the version <laughs> of the songs he did of ours. Boy, those are good versions. And of I, those songs and I like the I like the comedy intro. You know, yeah. again, you really kind of feel the goons. Uh, influence in this mm-hmm. like and that was missing from that that opening was missing from the glenn john ones as well and i yeah i think that's real strong that i dig a pygmy yeah because that yeah. again when you see when By you see charles hotry and the deaf aids whatever he says you know <laughs> yeah when you see like the beatles performing in blackpool and what have you you know they're they're joking around and especially mm-hmm. john likes putting yeah. on that kind of voice yeah you know so yeah i i always wonder like if they did you know if they did keep going if they would have had I, 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 I know there was never going to be the Beatles comedy hour, but it seemed like sometimes they were frustrated comedians a little bit that never mm-hmm. really got a chance to, yeah, you know, for sure. be that. Well, we'll come, we'll come to that in a way. The frustrated uh, comedy aspect? So I think... Okay. Look now, this song is supposedly about Paul's relationship with Linda, but to me it sounds more like his relationship with John, particularly when he's talking about chasing paper and... Uh, and getting nowhere. I mean, that really sounds like Apple. Well, you've <laughs> the Apple also, story and, and you've also and got more tour. memories than you have things that were going to be in the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that's not something a young person says. Yeah. You know, in a relationship with yeah, yeah, yeah. seems like with John. Yeah, and particularly like, since they were just mere days away from the whole Apple debacle erupting into a full blown legal mm-hmm. uh, battle. It's, uh, but I think I, it's a nice it's a nice uh, start to an album. It takes you in there, and oh, yeah, it's, it's a great uh, very very pleasant, a- fantastic song. I'm all for and it, and it's so fun to watch them play it in the movie. And uh, Paul actually gave this song to another band called Mortimer, who are an Apple signing from New York, a three-piece. But uh, I guess they never recorded it and actually never recorded for Apple. So it's one of those sort of, they were floating through. He said, you might like this song. Here you go. And that, that was that. And Paul, where are they now? Paul, ever the song plugger. Where are Mortimer now? Yes. If you're listening, let us know, let Mortimer. Us know, Mortimer. Okay. Uh, going on? Anything dig a, else on dig that a po- one? No. Dig a pony. Like, that was, as you, I was saying. Now, do be- you dig a pony? Do you dig this song? Do you like well, the I like, Pony song? I do like the song. I don't. I don't like it on the Glenn Johns one. Okay. Because it's a it's a studio it's a studio one. The version on the record is from the is from the concert mm-hmm. is from the rooftop, and I really like. Uh, I it really kind of brings it uh, alive. Like it really works as a as a group of as a combo playing live and that exuberance, you know, 
uh, it works. Another every other way lyrically and stuff like that, I could it's t- fine. Give, yeah, take it's it or leave it. A, yeah, it's one of those kind of you know nothing's real, everything's a game kind of songs that were very yeah, popular. Yeah, it's in a the bunch 60s. of crazy uh, words, and uh, yeah. there you go, and uh, make your yeah. own meanings up. People Lennon, that read into things too much. Later described by Lennon as garbage, the song. Mm. But I I don't uh, I don't know. I think it's pretty good. I now, now, now uh, I think I was reading that uh, Yoko Ono wrote some of the lyrics for this. Am I possible? incorrect? I think uh, Wikipedia might have told me that. Mm. It just seems strange that he would call like a song that uh, the person he uh, loved wrote garbage. But then I'm sure he's called stuff that Paul <laughs> wrote garbage. So, you know, yes. there you go. He but probably during his bitter period. Like I was saying, the, the thing about this album is that is because it was recorded live with no overdubs, there's not really a lot of songs behind the songs you know, or yeah. stories behind the songs because... They did it in an hour. Hey. And then they moved on. We've so. put a lot of context into this well, we've show. We've done Listen, a lot of context. You're all getting your value no, on this one. Don't worry. No one's, no one's going, why is this so short today? It's front loaded. Yeah, everything's fine. <laughs> everything's fine. Okay. We gave you your value in ahead of time. Sure. So Across the Universe. Which is, This has an interesting history, actually. Across be- the Universe. It's a beautiful song. I, I'm okay with this song. Oh, what uh, what don't uh, what sours you on it then? Or what oh. takes it down uh, from like... This, I think it's okay. Okay. I've, I always heard people... Acclaim it, mm-hmm. and I've always just felt that I like it. I like it okay. So I think this is a nice one when you're lying on the bed and just letting mm-hmm. your mind go. Sure. And uh, sure. again, you are a straight I arrow. I had, you wish have, I had time for that. You you have you make the time. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you want to do this podcast from bed, you just lie down. I'll I'll sit up here uh, yeah. beside and I'll do it. Uh, you're also again. Uh, you do not do drugs. This would be a good song if you enjoyed, uh, say, a marijuana cigarette. Okay. Okay. You know, I would think, or or a little bit of acid, sure, a little bit of uh, okay. LSD. You know, it's it's one of those that just relax and go, and yeah, I think it's a really beautiful song myself. Okay, well, what's the interesting thing about this song is that, but you hate this album, so you know, there you go. I mean, you're <laughs> right, you're front loaded with the mm-hmm. uh, rage on this whole. So thing. this song was kind of exhumed from the dead mm-hmm. because it was John briefly played it in during the Twickenham rehearsals, but it actually had been recorded in uh, May of '68. And it was recorded at the same time they recorded Lady Madonna, The Inner Light, Hey Bulldog. It was all part of that session that they kind of did before they went to uh, Rishikesh. And they wanted to have some songs in. Okay. And so um, now Lennon has accused, many times, has accused Paul McCartney of not being very, very good with his songs. And this one, he actually said Paul McCartney sab- sabotaged it. But to be fair to Paul, which John hardly ever was, uh, John himself did not know what he wanted with his song. Like, it went through all kinds of different variations you know they played it with george on tambura and then that george on sitar and then they they were and when after john had recorded his lead vocals they decided that they needed like high harmonies and that higher than the beatles could sing so they went outside and they got two girls two of the kind of what were called apple scruffs the kids just hanging around outside the studio <laughs> okay and they uh brought them in Okay, very different to the time. studio, yeah. Okay, right. the studio. Yeah. One was a sixteen-year-old girl from Brazil named Lizzie Bravo. Right. And the other was a seventeen-year-old Londoner named Gaylene Peace. They both came in and probably super excited. Did their vocals. They did that. Nothing's gonna change my world. They did that part. Right. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, I'm just picturing their friend who didn't show up that day. Oh yeah. And like, let's all go hang out there. <laughs> okay, yeah. But what's the point? And then they come back with that story, and then well, I think they kind of had to do a bit of an audition. They were, you know, there, there were other girls there, so they're looking for girls who 
Wow. Could sing as well. What as. a weird day for those girls. Yeah, it's crazy. So now, but still, John was unhappy with Across the Universe, and he felt like Lady Madonna was, he wanted it to be a single at first, but he just wasn't happy with the way it went, and so, okay. he, you know, he thought Lady Madonna should be the single, and that The Inner Light was a great song, and that should be the B-side. And so, Across the Universe was kind of shelved. It was earmarked to go on uh, Spike Milligan's World Wildlife Federation album, uh, which also had the name Nothing's Gonna Change Our World. Strangely enough. And because uh, I guess that song was kind of the highlight of it. But um, so when it was used in the film, then they're like, well, it's got to be on the album. So then Glenn Johns had to take it. And so he mixed out uh, the, the two young ladies. He mixed them out of, of it because they weren't there. And he mixed out the Beatles' own backing vocals. Mm-hmm. And then he faded, he, he kind of faded the song early. So, you, you know, just to kind of give it a kind of short abruptness to it, make it feel more kind of live. And then he added six seconds of, of Lennon's, at the beginning of Lennon saying, are, are you all right, Richard, to uh, Ringo Starr? And, and so it kind of, so this what, so it kind of sounded like the other songs. So when Spectre got it, he kind of took what, he took what, um, John's had already done to it. So he got a track. He didn't know that there was, you know, girl singers on it, stuff like that. So he took the track and he slowed it down to D, from D to D flat. And then he added strings and a choir to it. And so it it gives it that kind of weird kind of sparkling sound right. that, that the other versions don't have. So there you go. I be mine. Uh, all right. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, you want to say something else? That. Yeah, I just want to say like uh, again with the uh, the first song. You know, they're talking a lot about home. In this, uh, going with my whole nostalgia home thing. Yep. The the whole idea of nothing's going to change my world. If you're a teenager, uh, it's scary. The future coming up. Whatever. And the the idea of lying on your bed and just going like. Nope, nothing's going to change my world. All this stuff is happening, all this craziness, yeah. all this insanity, but nothing's going to change my world. It's kind of a... You'll find out. Well, <laughs> all right, that's one way to look at it. That's kind of kicking that teenager in the past while they're Good down. Good luck, brother. <laughs> okay. I have teenagers. All right. I have very little I have very little patience with them. Okay. I deserve Okay, um, I mean mine. Which, uh, now, am I, am I getting that you don't care for this song? Oh, I was I like getting a, oh, do you? Like okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, I, I just like the way that sounds. The mm-hmm. uh, I mean, mine. It's kind of a waltz time, and yeah, yeah, it's cool. a nice waltz time. I like the I like the uh, the way the lyrics sound. Uh, yeah. It's just a, a fun thing to say. And uh, I mean, mine. Yeah. yeah, that is what the culture was. Yeah. You know, that's well. Like I was saying, this song was recorded on January the third, nineteen seventy. This was the last time the Beatles were in the studio together. The th- three Beatles together. The very last time that all four were in the, in the studio together was for the mixing sessions for Abbey Road. Mm-hmm. When they did this song, uh, John was in Denmark and had basically already quit the band. So he was away on holiday. And so um, this was the very last time that these Beatles would be together for another 20 years or 24 years or whatever well, no, in a studio is, together. This is sad. And so it seems kind of fitting that the last song recorded by the Beatles was, was a lament to divisive egotism. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Okay. So I think, you know, it just seems kind of interesting. All right. And so uh, the original mix of the song, well, their original version of it was uh, was a minute and 34 seconds. That's what the Beatles recorded in the studio. Okay. It was very short, very sweet. And that's what John's used for his original mix. So he got, so when he did his mix on the 5th of January, he incorporated this into it and he just used the one minute 34. Now what Spectre did was he took, he what he did was he added 51 seconds to the song by cutting it, uh... At the just after the fifth verse, just after the line "flowing more freely than wine," he reverse he reverses back and picking it up again at the all through the day, and then then letting the song run its course from there back again. So he had fifty one seconds, and then he added. Uh, so he had a big. I was saying he had a big overdubbing session with, 
And so it was really big. He had 18 violins, four violas, four cellos, a harp, three trumpets, <laughs> three trombones, two guitarists, and 14 vocalists, and also Ringo on drums. Wow. And so that was that uh, overdub session he had uh, for three different songs. The problem with the session was he booked it for two songs. He didn't, so that the musicians were not going to get paid for the third. So they're given a third piece of music, and they basically after their two, the two songs, they walked out. Hmm. They're like, well, I'm not getting paid. I don't have to be here. But uh, it was kind of resolved, but so they did get it done. But yeah, um, yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that song. I, I right. do like I do like the song a lot. I think it's a, okay. a great song, and I really like the moment in the movie where John and Yoko are, are dancing to it while John or while George is playing it. At the at the point that we're recording this, I have not seen. Oh, we have that not movie seen. Yet. Okay. Yeah. I'll have to uh, to those, uh, those of you that again listen to the show know what we're going to do uh, for our last two episodes of last Robert episode. Sh- well, no, our last two because we're going to do probably a question one. Last. Oh, okay. Uh, we're going to um, cover the films separately. Yeah, maybe. Oh, we're not. Oh, we're making. Uh, okay, much like the Beatles, uh, <laughs> uh, Dave has uh, made decisions without me that I'm unaware of. So uh, that's right. I'm going to pull a George and give- <laughs> uh, good day to. I've given the last two episodes to Phil Spector. He's right. uh, orchestrating them. Hey, 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 David! I'm yeah. Eric Clapton. I've come to replace Ian. <laughs> I'm not sure what accent I'm supposed to have, and I sound a lot like Ian. All right, <laughs> moving on. Moving on to dig to it. dig it, dig it now. Once again, I love it. You dig it. I love it. There you go. Do no, it's, it's fun. Yeah, absolutely. Fun, like yeah. a Rolling Stone. It's just like a, a short, Rolling Stone. There you go. But I even like the ver- the longer version on the Clint. I I like that one a bit more because well, it, what happens in that version? Well, it's just got a bit more like uh, it's got Paul doing a little part in it, like he, he him doing a little ad lib. It was just ad libbed, right? So yeah. it's just another little improvised part that he's doing. Well, this all makes it, it feel like a. It does feel like a concert. It feels like they're goofing at yeah. a concert and having a good time. Yeah, yeah, and and it just works for me. And um, what's interesting though is that uh, well, like I said, the original version was uh, 12, 12 and a half minutes long, which mm-hmm. is too long. If you're, It is available on YouTube if people want to okay. listen to it. Believe me when I say that it's too long. But what is interesting... If you want to overcook an egg, just start it. Mm-hmm. And uh... What is interesting is that Paul's stepdaughter, Heather, is, sings on it. She does a, a yokel-like vocal at the beginning of the song. Vocal, a yokel vocal. A yokel vocal, yeah. Not a yokel vocal. That's what a hillbilly That's does. That's different. That's right. right. Uh, this was a Yoko vocal. And yeah, so it's, re- it's kind of interesting <laughs> I wanna to hear. I want to make you say that as much as possible. It's kind of interesting to hear. So like I say, John's, he, he, so the song was 12 and a half minutes. John's faded in at 827. Okay. And just let it run to the end. What Spectre used was it's a snippet from 852 to 941. That's all he used of it. And I kind of wish it went on a little longer. And I do like the, uh, and by the way, everyone, for those who don't know, Matt Busby was the manager for Manchester United. Okay. That's a name that I didn't know who he was. So you looked it up. Yeah, I know who Doris Day is. I know who BB King is. I didn't know who Matt Busby was. That is the kind of trivia that we uh, we we look for. Yeah. Okay. Hey, guess what we're at right now? Let it be. Let it be. Right. Can Wait. I just talk about the song just a little bit? Just. I think that's the point of the podcast. Because that'd be very strange if I said no, wouldn't it? <laughs> because this song is is I well, I do like this song a lot, and uh, despite despite McCar- despite how Paul presented himself at this time. With his kind of thumbs aloft, cheery, chappy routine, he was deeply troubled through like the Beatles album, through Let It Be. He couldn't sleep at night; like he would just lie in bed, just like absolutely like just so tense, like he just you know just could not relax or have oh, any kind of happiness. And so, because you know, no one else cared but Paul. That's what it felt like to him, right? He was the only one who cared about the Beatles and was fighting to keep this thing alive, this thing that he cared so deeply about that he'd invested himself in. Mm-hmm. John was over it. You know, the first person to do something, they can get over it the first. Right. To Paul, to be accepted into this gang that John had, 
You know, that was super meaningful it's for also, him. Now, now, is Paul younger than John? Paul's a little younger than John. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is all he's known. Yeah. You know, uh, that's a terrifying thing. Like, you've, you've, you, you know, to, to leave this, what else, what else is there? You know, especially something so successful artistically, yeah. commercially, in every respect. Are you going to do better than this when you leave? Probably not. It's hard, well, it's hard to know. It's hard to know, right? It's well, to it's know. But you know and what? You could probably know if you're, you're like if that successful. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to be that successful again with whatever you do next? Probably not. Oh no! Yeah, you, you you're not. But there reaches the point where you don't care about that. You might not. You don't care. You're just you know, like whatever. But again, you're you're the one. You, there's a breakup happening, and you're the one that wants to keep the relationship going. Yeah. And so you try and do what you do. I and, don't think he was as scared of. Did I just say as scared? I don't think he was as scared of the the future. In terms of like, oh, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be a failure. You know, I'm going to be mm, Paul McCartney no. playing in a tube station with a hat in front of me. You know, I like, think failure, but it won't be what it. Yeah, well, what I think that's what. Yeah, I think he, you know, I think he really enjoyed being a Beatle. Mm-hmm. You know, he enjoyed the whole band dynamic. That's what he lived lived for and loves, and still loves. You know, he likes playing in a band. He's, you yeah. know, he still, you know, there's a reason he formed Wings when he after the Beatles. You know, we're done. He, you know, he wanted to be in a band. Yeah, he's prolific to this day. Um, he's got a hit song right now. The problem for the problem for Paul is that he cannot see when he is going too far, when he's pushing too far, when he's coaxing, when he's condescending. You know, it, mm-hmm. you know, being being a person who's trying to get people to do stuff can quickly become like a condescending jerk, right? Sure. And that's often where he found himself. And I and as I said before, he was afraid of Lenin. You know, he's afraid of Lenin's sarcasm, and he was afraid. So he. You know, trying to placate him, he just he just alienated Ringo and, and George quite often. So, you know, he just he was going. Th- so all this bitter hostility and everything this surrounding him, you know, it just was this. You know, this not. You know, he was very unhappy. And so one night, he had this dream where his mum appeared to him. You know, whose name was Mary, and she said, "You know, let it go. It's all right. You don't have to carry this all on you. Just let it be. Let it happen. Come what may. You know, and." This was such a meaningful dream for him that did the usual thing that Paul would do, which is write a song about it. But, you know, to write about that experience, you know. I don't know if you've ever, like, I, I still have my parents, but I lost my mother-in-law, who I was very close to. And about a year ago, I had a dream about her. And I woke up, and I could smell her, mm-hmm. and I could feel her warmth, and I could mm-hmm. hear her voice in my mind still, you know. Like, it just I felt her presence as if she was still with me. And it was super meaningful, you know. And so I can understand why, how he felt in that moment, you know. And uh, so, yeah, so John hated the song because he felt it was, if it felt it to him, it reeked of Catholic sanctimony. You know? How, ca- I think what's he took Catholic the, about that? I think he took the Mother Mary element of it and the kind of churchiness of, of the, of the arrangement. That, okay. All right. Look, I, as a, as a, as a former Catholic, they don't say, let it be. <laughs> they get really get in your business. You know, there's none of that live and let live. Everything's fine. You know, no. But that's why, that's why he asked Paul, uh, are we supposed to giggle during the solo? Mm-hmm. And why he puts, and why it, Maggie Mae follows it on the, on the album. Mm-hmm. You know, John may have had a hand in that, you know, like just as a sort of way of puncturing the balloon of, of let it be, you know. Sure. And, uh, it's kind of a cynical thing. Yeah, that's fine. But yeah. you, you put yourself out there, you put your heart out there, and uh, someone is going to go like, yeah. "That's that's giggle stupid." Oh, it's someone's going to do it. Someone's it's a wonder, say it. It's a wonderful song. I, I'm not going to deny it's a wonderful song. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's as it's a little unfortunate that John's bass playing is a little bit a bit plunky. But you know, okay, whatever. He wasn't a bass player. The problem with doing no overdubs was that if Paul was on the piano, someone else had to be the bass player. Right. And you know, because John. Because George was a better guitar player, he was playing the guitar yeah, part. But Paul and, was the best bass player. But what yeah, do you do? exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, 
and so it, you know it's one of one of the effects of the whole let it be thing is was a you couldn't you couldn't spend time working on the song and perfecting it of getting a great back you know great you know it would sound really great if the beatles were singing together on it too like doing some harmony vocals would really make the song even better than it is you know do you think so oh yeah i wonder like uh, it, it feels like it's such a personal song to have other people joining in mm-hmm. makes it not that solo personal journey like now you got your friends with you yeah. like even symbolically like it would just feel like oh me. you got a room you got a room full of people with <laughs> well, you you're playing in a band your friends are no with i understand <laughs> that I understand you can't that. Escape. Okay, but even a, but a solo Billy Holiday singing, she's got other people around her, but she's just the only one singing yeah. singing the song. I don't I, yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think like it being a solo situation, him kind of singing directly to, you know, the audience. I think that's strong. I disagree with you. Cuz what about the long and winding road? Wouldn't you say that's also a, a solo song then? No. That you're singing no, because to- you're really talking about all right, here's the thing. You're, in, this song this song specifically is a person like, when I find myself in times yeah. of trouble, yeah. he's alone. Yeah. Like, he is so alone on this. If he has his friends singing, you know, why not talk to those friends? Like, it feels like if anyone else in the room, then it feels like he's not alone. So you got to set up your alone. And then it's like your mother Mary comes to me, you know, speaking the words of wisdom, let it be. Uh, then possibly you could have a woman's voice singing with you. But if you have the other lads singing with you, eh, that doesn't really work for me. Like, Yeah, you might be right. I'll give you that. Um, this was the first song to break the no overdubs rule as well. Okay. Uh, George added a guitar solo to it, that Leslie Tone guitar solo that you'll hear in the, I guess in the album version. The single version has a different solo in it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, because what happened was, remember I said it had two guitar solos on it? Okay. Because... In, on January the third, January fourth, they added the strings and the horns to it, and they also added another guitar solo by George. So what happened was on the album version, Phil Spector chose uh, one one of one of the guitar solo. He mixed one of the guitar solos into it, and he turned up the the horns and the, and the strings. And on the single version, the strings and the horns are mixed very low, and a different solo was chosen. But it's actually the same song. Oh, okay. it's just mixed slightly differently and uses a different guitar solo that ex- exists simultaneously within that. It's one of those weird things about music, about tracking that you can, when you mix a song, you know, you know what, mix, you know what mixing is? We've talked about it a lot, mixing sessions and things. I've been to mixing sessions. I've seen okay. them happen. So you know what's being done then? Not, you know what? If you were to ask me to describe it, I probably, I, just blending things together. You tell me. Well, you're right. Because when you record a song, you know, you have all your various parts. Let's say you have eight tracks, you have yeah. eight different tracks of I have of sounds. recorded songs. Sure. <laughs> okay, go ahead. So when you when you are doing your mix, you set your various levels. So you choose how loud you want the guitars or mm-hmm. the drums to be in the song and where the vocals will be. And then you can also, you know, pan it so you can have various you know across the stereo spectrum. Right. So you decide all that while you're doing your mix. That's what the so so in this case, by turning this lever down, like turning a dial down or you know, a slider or whatever down, okay. he removes that guitar solo entirely from what's appears the same way that say if you're working in photoshop and you have various layers you can turn a layer off it's still there but when you print it it doesn't appear right it, but it's still there you can have it appear later if you want you can bring it bring that image back similar similar to the way, way mixing works there you go cool but you i like guess me? i did i guess i did know how mixing worked then <laughs> <laughs> yes you did i have done the you know bring it up bring it down too much sure. of this too much of that yep but I still don't understand how Photoshop works. So, so your second part of that description <laughs> did throw me off completely. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've got a feeling that you'll okay. never know how Photoshop works. No, oh I'm... no, sorry. I mean, this is the next song. All right. I've got a feeling. Um, because we kind of mentioned this is made up of two different song fragments. Mm-hmm. One by Paul, the verse chorus in the ten-bar middle section, 
and and then a kind of bluesy. Oh, you, we're, we're not talking about Maggie May at all. You want to talk about Maggie May if you want? Sure. All right, here's the thing. Uh, Maggie May. It's an older kind of dirty song, yeah. and they all enjoyed it and they uh, played it. All, yeah. right, all right, here we go. Yeah. Okay, let's move and on. And it uh, kind of takes the uh, takes a little kick at the they say the sanctimony and the spiritual nature of the let it be. You're yeah, feeling. yeah, yeah. It felt like that to me. Okay, you know what I'm doing the old uh, thing about everything feels nostalgic and home and whatever. Clearly, you know your mother giving you comfort in times of you know that's definitely nostalgia home. Yeah, Maggie May feels like that feels nostalgic in that this is the kind of thing they used to play. Back in the day when they were starting out, it's the kind of dirty song that, you know, they'd all jam on and have a good time and you feel like naughty, naughty lads yeah. playing it. Yeah. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, ta- it's a little comfort food, comfort food for, uh, for, for them yes. as a band. And I bet they were laughing doing it. Yes. It's very hammy. Yeah. It's a and real, these guys it's like, a real performance. These guys like being ham sometimes. Sure do. All right. Uh, now we're moving to I Got a Feeling. <laughs> yes. Dave, can we please, please yeah. talk about Side I Got a two. Feeling? I've Got a Feeling. All right. Flip that album. And, uh, yeah, I was going to say it's song fragments. So it's, and, and then it was a bluesy kind of two chord part by Lennon that yeah. had kind of a, a diary. It was a sort of a diary of 1968. That's what he had written. And so they mo- they put them together and they actually kind of worked together perfectly well, like, you know, kind of commenting on each other in a way. Paul McCartney's is more about kind of more d- about domestic bliss. Mm-hmm. And then you have Lennon's kind of more rough and ready diary. And it kind of fit for both of them, um, you know, with Paul's new domestic life and then Lennon's insistence that all art should be self-referential and the other thing is it's their first collaboration since a day in the life on sergeant pepper oh okay yeah yeah and from what i was reading it was a really bad year for lennon that year hmm. again this busted is what, this is what could be yeah it was the drug thing uh yoko had a miscarriage that's right yeah. it was uh you know just bad time. divorce trying to get divorce yeah, yeah. bad times all all, all around mm-hmm. uh but i i really do like the lyrics to this i like that you know Everyone has every, you know, we, we all go through this. We all go through things, bad years, good years. You pull up your socks, you do this. We're all just people. Here you are. And I know that, I know that's a bit corny, but, uh, it works for me. <laughs> I like corn. Um, you like, yeah, I, I well, I enjoy it. I, just, I like sincere yeah. corn. I don't like someone, I don't like someone trying to tweak your emotions. I, I don't like a movie where, uh, the dog's in danger and they're just trying to, like, you know, push. But I think, like, if you sincerely believe something, like, to me, Let It Be feels like that's a sincere song. It can mm-hmm. be, it can be called a corny song as well. Yeah. But it's, uh, sincere corn. And, and sure. to me, good. Good oh, on you for that. Personally, I think it's very sincere, but, uh, yeah. Um, the other thing, this was recorded on this, the version on Let It Be is the rooftop version. All right. So once again, with these kind of songs where it just seems to work, that extra added excitement of the live version really kind of gives these songs that might have been sort of weak sisters, gives them a bit of a, a, a boost, you know. All right. Let's, let's talk about another weak sister. <laughs> one, <laughs> one after 909. Yeah. That's a, that's a song that sounds like they had fun doing it. Sure. It's, well, it's a that, very early song written by John in 1957. Sure. In Paul McCartney's house about maybe a couple, uh, Shortly after they met at the the Woolton Village Fete, or Fete, or however you say that word, in 1957, I put here. But then I must have fallen asleep while I was writing this because I was falling asleep while I was doing my notes last night because it says, in 1957, 08765543. Okay. So apparently I... You dream in uh, numbers. I would wake up and I would have like a bunch of Ds all down the page from my fingers falling asleep on the keyboard. Oh, uh, wouldn't it be terrible if you yeah. were dreaming this whole thing? We had to still do it. We had to do it all again. That'd <laughs> yes. be too bad. Uh, be no, bad. this one sounds like, again, this feels like going back yeah. to the nostalgia, much sure. like Maggie Mae. We're yeah. just having, uh, remember yeah. when we used to play songs like this? Good times. There you go. Comfort, comfort. Yeah. We're having a good time doing and, it. And, you know, they tried it out uh, when they were recording for Me To You. They tried it in the studio and they 
it didn't really come together for them. So it's their chance to kind of revive it. And sure. finally, people can hear the song. It's a fun song. It's, it's a fun it's a song. Fun... And again, if we're, we're, we're breaking up, uh, maybe we want to yeah. do the fun thing we used to do together. We all had fun playing Scrabble. Remember that? Let's all play yeah. Scrabble again. Yeah. That's all right. And both and both the Get Back and Let It Be use the rooftop version be- just because it has like the correct amount of bumbling excitement, I think, to it that it keeps it interesting. This sounds a little bit mean, but this song sounds like it was more fun to play than it was to listen to. For me. One after 909. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know. It yeah. is what it is. Good, like good for them having a nice I time. I said it was a weak sister. Okay. And now uh, now we're... Although I do like uh, George Harrison's combination. You're taking his like Carl Perkins sound and updating it into a, to a late 60s rock, rock, you know, kind of rock gods guitar sound as okay. well. So it's kind of a fun combination of Eric Clapton and, and Carl Perkins. All right. And now? Now we're going to... One of my favorite... Much like another, our show, another The one Long of my, and Winding Road. <laughs> another favorite Beatles... This is one of my favorite songs. Is it? Yeah. Okay. I do like the song And what makes this song one of your favorites? Just love the singing, love the... It is beautifully the, uh, sung. sound of it. And I even like this version of it. I know that it's controversial, that... Uh, that Phil Spector added 18 violins and three trombones and two guitarists. And, and that was the last vocalists. controversial thing Phil Spector ever did. Probably. <laughs> he's, he's, been, he's kept a low profile ever since then. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because, I don't know, I just, I just love it with the choir and stuff like that. And to be fair to Phil Spector, I mean, the version that he had to work with wasn't the greatest. Like, it was basically like a, a demo track that, that was done. And, you know, like, it just, it needed, you know, it needed a bit of something to, to, make it great i heard this song at a time in my life when i needed to hear this song when i was very very far away from home okay and uh it was a really beautiful moment and it was with someone who i really cared about and it was uh, i didn't and she just put on this uh song and it was just ah uh, so this one connects with me deeply yeah. and i really love this song huh and really it's more about the frustration of um, of of i'm not attaining mm-hmm. you know uh, than it is about it's not really a getting home or anything it's about yep. not getting there that the road is always long and winding yeah. that you never reach your destination you want a sad song when uh, you're in that kind of I guess situation so. yeah. i guess so you don't want a song that's like and it all worked out and it's great like you don't want that song the the, the song that's like a little open-ended is uh, it's better for better for you in times what's, times like that what's crazy is he wrote it the same day he wrote let it be I can see that. So I guess they kind of are bookends in a way. Mm-hmm. Similar piano ballads, obviously. You mentioning you mentioning earlier that you don't think they should be on the same uh, side of the album. Yeah, I, I would agree with. Yeah, yeah. They, it seems like we've we've been through this, you know. Mm, so yeah. we don't need this one here. Though it's again, it's a fantastic song uh, uh, on the on side one would have been a good place, or you know. So uh, what Paul McCartney intended with this was it was going to be like uh, he was going to be like a song plugger. He wrote this and he sent it around to various like. Other singers like Scylla Black and Tom Jones for them to do. Oh, Tom Jones, that'd be yeah, interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I like the idea of Tom Jones doing it. Someone throwing underwear up at <laughs> the, the long end. Yes, that is a winding road. Um, so uh, now the orchestrations are done by this guy named Richard Hewson. He did all the orchestrations. Phil Spector didn't actually do the arrangements. He he brought in this guy uh, who he had actually worked with Mary Hopkin on Those Were the Days. So with, okay. that Paul McCartney produced, and uh, and so. Um, now we all know that Paul McCartney was very upset when he heard the the when he heard the orchestrated version of of the Long and Winding Road. He was he was upset. By yeah. That? Oh yeah. He just, he didn't want that on it. Just want to keep it nice, clear, and simple. Yeah. All right. He, I did not know he was upset. Oh yeah. He he hated uh, Phil Spector's version of, Let, of right. the album, and uh, he was particularly upset with with having the choir and stuff because it wasn't what the Beatles were about, you know. And I think George Martin was upset too, and he he also had a right to be upset because he had you know very carefully had. Um, it constructed this kind of anti-romantic aesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of music, you know, this very uh, dry kind of uh, modern classical music 
um, that, you know, that was kind of what he arranged for the Beatles. And, and so Houston's was way, you know, sort of grandiloquent, uh, you know, lavish, romantic score with this qu- huge choir and everything, you know, mm-hmm. it's just very over the top, which is what Spectre was about. Yeah. You know, he invented yeah, the wall of yeah, sound. Yeah. You don't bring Spectre in when you want to settle. Yeah. That's right. This is a guy. He invented the wall of sound. Oh, does he do very subtle music? Yeah. He was walls. Yeah. But, uh, never did the floor of sound. Never did the ceiling of sound. Only the wall of sound. But what's interesting is when they did the, uh, when they did the, um, the session for, for the, the overdub session for the orchestral overdub session, Spectre got really upset because like most, most producers, you just do it. They hear it dry in their headphones, you know, and the echo and stuff's added after. But Spectre wanted it added then. He wanted to hear the echo right then while they're doing it. And unfortunately, like he was in studio number two, which is a very primitive studio. It's Abbey Road Studios, which we've already established was about five years behind what was happening in the States. And so they couldn't really do that for him. He was getting really, really upset. And finally, Ringo had to take him aside and say, Phil, calm down. Like, they can't do it. They're doing their best. It's just not going to work that way. So yeah. just calm down. Like, he just had to take him aside and, you know, yeah, it's sort of interesting. Thank you, Ringo. And We uh, could have used you at later dates. <laughs> and now, what I think is interesting. So, what's well, sorry, you can say say that, please. Say it again. Oh, <laughs> later, later times? Yeah, yeah later Ringo's, times. Yeah. We could have used a Ringo. By the yeah. way, uh, like I... When he pulled I, a gun on John, you mean? Uh, yeah, other times as well. Uh, I, I looked up uh, just, just now, and uh, Tom Jones has recorded a couple of well, times sure yeah, that, this song. Yeah. This, I was going, there's no way... He didn't do this yeah, one. And yeah, so, yes. I don't want to hear it, but I'm sure he did. Panties um, were flying. The thing is, it's okay. Now, Richard Houston did the orchestrations for Long and Riding Road and Across the Universe, stuff like that. Paul's all mad at him. You know, all mad at all these, it hates it and everything else like that. But then he used them, like a couple years later, for Thrillington, which was this uh, version when he did Ram. Well, he, he did a, he also did a, a, a an orchestral or a, or a instrumental version of Ram. Mm-hmm. At the same time, and he released it a few years later. He was going to do it right away, but he didn't. He took took him a while. He released it as an album called Thrillington by this made up character called Percy Thrills Thrillington <laughs> that uh, Paul created and had like you know got like mentioned in, in gossip columns and stuff like that. So people started wondering who is this Percy Thrillington Everyone's character? Talking about Thrillington. Everyone's talking about him. Yeah, and then he released this album. It didn't use his name on it. It wasn't a Paul McCartney album. No one knew who did it. It just came out, and everyone was you know. So it's supposed to be this album by this guy named Thrillington. It's really kind of an interesting album, actually. It's okay. a lot of fun, but uh, yeah. But Houston did the orchestral arrangements for it. <laughs> so how mad was he at Richard Houston? Is what I'm asking you. Not very. I will agree with you on that. All right. If you care to move on, we can. Oh, I do care to move on. For you, blue. Mm-hmm. Fun song. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I think this is what we say. Hey, it's fun. Yeah. Okay. Hey, it's that person at the high school reunion where you're like, hey, that was a good guy. You want to hang out later with him? Nah, I'm all right. He's a nice guy, though. <laughs> He's nice. Yeah, I got nothing against him. Good for him. I hear you. Yeah, there he is. Yeah. Hey, I always wore that shirt. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> he did. What a wacky guy. Any trivia about this song? Uh, it's not trivia. It's important facts. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Um, you may need to, this information we're giving you may save your life at some point. Exactly. Well, uh, John plays the slide guitar on it. Mm-hmm. So kind of out of his realm. And I just like that he goes, uh, Elmer, James got nothing on you, baby. Yeah, I do like I did that. I like that. Like, yeah. but it's kind of fun. And then apparently it was a Hofner Hawaiian standard lap steel guitar. Isn't it always fun when they talk? Yeah. Yeah. It's it just is. like, ah. Oh, There's a nice little, because it feels chummy and it feels like yeah. you're, part of, you're part of it too. Yeah, you're, you're in on it. Yeah, yeah I like yeah. it very much. Yeah. So Get Back. Well, there we go. Which you know was a single. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, are we, uh, was the single different than the uh, album version? The single... Glenn or Glenn Johns used the single used the single version on Get Get Back, but um, 
Uh, Phil Spector used a, a version from the day before for his that was recorded the day before for on Let It Be. Okay. Yeah, I'm not too I'm not too sure why. Uh, it doesn't sound that it doesn't sound terrible or anything. It's, just, it's slightly different. Okay. Um, yeah, this song uh, this song has a great intro. Like just mm-hmm. it just comes in. It just comes in. Yeah. First of all, I like them goofing around again. They're talking. They're having a yeah. good time. Well, which version? Do you like the single version? Because the single version starts. Well, I'm, differently I'm talking than the the, uh, the one on the okay, album. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it has that kind of uh, just starting out kind of feeling. It's one of the few songs in here where you feel like, oh, this is live. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, I just feel yeah, it feels like. You know, one of my favorite parts about the Beatles, you know, at the at the beginning was uh, they were really jokey. You know, they were uh, their their interviews with you know they were just jokey, fun guys, and then it got a little serious for a while. And uh, and yeah, it's just it's fun hearing the jokey guys again. Mm-hmm. It feels like yeah, things are all right. Yeah, it's comforting. Yeah, I guess to me too. It's like I mean, I know what happens, right? So I'm like at the part of the movie uh, where I know the the things are not going to turn out well. Yeah. you know, and I I, I know I, I know how this movie ends, and I'm like oh, but I still want to keep watching it. But I'm a little sad. Yeah. So it's nice just to, when you get little bits of like all right, they're still they're all having a good time still. It's okay. It's all right. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So yeah, it's comforting. But yeah, um, get back, man. It just starts. Just it's just rolling in, and here we go. And man, it's just a it's such of, a great song. It is fun, and uh, I guess inspired by Canned Heat, who Paul was kind of a fan of at the time. Songs like uh, "On the Road Again," "Going Up the oh, Going Up the Country," mm-hmm. where radio hits, and he actually played played it for during it with Twickenham. He played uh, "Going Up Country" for the other guys. Like maybe as a you know, this is kind of the sound I'm going for. Yeah. Also, better known as, well, not better known as, but it's actually a ripoff of a blues song called Bold Blues Blues. I just want to put that out there. Okay. Going up Good country. shout out to... Uh, Listen on YouTube, uh, everybody. Yeah, there Bold you go. Bold Those Blues by yeah, Henry Thomas. Yeah, you should all be like, have a little notepad uh, next to you while you're uh, doing this. <laughs> and, uh, and and again, going with the whole thing about like uh, home and nostalgia, clearly, this is, you know, go home. But this song changed quite a bit. From? From, from its rehearsals to when it was recorded. All right. In what ways? Well, it was originally going to be called the Commonwealth Song. That's uh, a much better name. <laughs> and it was going to be based on the troubles faced by Kenyan refugees who were coming to, who were coming to England at that time. Yeah. Because there was a Commonwealth Immigration Bill and the act they were putting in and it was going to limit immigration into, into Britain. So people were trying to get in under the wire, as it were. And uh, so this song was kind of inspired by what was happening at the time. And so it was originally about a Pakistani yeah. living in another land. And include the lines, don't dig no Pakistanis taking all the people's jobs. Get back to where you once belonged. And that would be a, a, a bad person saying that. Yeah, it was, it was, he was meant as, it was meant as a satire and racism. Right. But the problem was, is it happened, it was occurring around the same time as this politician in England named Enoch Powell made this very famous speech called the Rivers of Blood speech in Birmingham, England, where he, where he, uh, predicted a race war was going to break, break out in England because of the immigration. And so, you know, in a, such a climate, one does not want to throw a song called <laughs> talking about Pakistanis and where they, they should go back to where they once belonged, etc. So very wisely, uh, McCartney rethought it. Yeah. And then probably with, you know, it was probably a collaboration in the studio. Right. We're kind of throwing ideas around because it feels like a very loose kind of lyric, you know. And so it became more about pot smokers and transsexuals than, uh, than yeah, its original subject matter. Well, it's just like when you're talking about like, kind of race relations and that kind of thing something I, I i read about this week was that um the beatles when they were touring touring yeah uh, would not play anywhere that was segregated they would not uh, play to a segregated audience hmm. and so uh, a lot of uh, venues that were segregated had to break that 
you wow. know, for uh, for their concerts because what were they going to turn down all this money? Yeah. yeah. So uh, yeah, so good for them. Yeah, there you go. Thumbs up to the Beatles. <laughs> good, good for, for those guys. And uh, that would have been, uh, I think, uh, I think, I think uh, they made the right choice on this song too. Frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, because you know, you with all the best intentions in the world, absolutely, it's so easy for someone like that to be misinterpreted. No kidding. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. So it only exists as in the Twickenham tapes. If you, if you if you care to plow through ninety hours of of material. Yeah. Uh, you and can it wouldn't hear be it wouldn't be the first time a Beatles song was misinterpreted by somebody. For sure. Yeah. That's true enough. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and uh, that's the album. That is the album, but yeah. we, have we got to any... We've got uh, a couple B-sides. B-sides, We're just going to wrap up, because right. the songs are in the album, we kind of incorporated. This is, I guess, an interesting, kind in a way, I guess with the Beatles' career kind of running down, I guess besides the ballad, ballad of John and Yoko, which will be what we'll be talking about next week, the Beatles didn't do too many singles that yeah. weren't... Technically weren't, in two weeks, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, technically in two weeks. Have you made the show weekly? You're making I've, a lot of bold yeah, choices. I mean, right. Just, just, I'm going to, we're going to rush the end. <laughs> okay. Because I feel like we're breaking apart. Yeah, so you want to like want really us, jam it all. I want us to really. Have you booked us together. a live show somewhere? I have. I have. Oh, I'm nuts. Okay, <laughs> we're gonna be at the Roundhouse. All right, listen. Which actually, is a place here in in Vancouver. Would it be okay if we did this uh, last bit on the roof? If we just went up there, <laughs> for sure. By the way, there are a lot of bees up there. So talking about the B sides, that's fine. Would Perfect. completely work. Perfect. All right. So what are the B sides? Well, the first one was the B side to Get Back was Don't Let Me Down. Yeah, good song. Brilliant song. I love yeah. that song. Fantastic. One of my favorite John Lennon songs. I like a lot of John Lennon songs. I was I like Paul McCartney a lot, but it yeah. seems like John Lennon songs always hit me in this certain spot. There was uh, there was something someone said in one of the little uh, I don't want to say little that sounds condescending, but uh, in one of the iTunes reviews where they said, "Oh, one of the little comments about a show. Oh, yeah, How nice right. of you to say that." What did I just back out of? I just completely backpedaled away just, from that, I and now you're pushing much, the though. bike back I for know. the ditch. I, I liked it too much. Thanks, thanks Johnny. Support. <laughs> Uh, we really are breaking sorry, up, frankly. Sorry. No, but where they were saying that they liked on this show that there isn't the Lennon or uh, McCartney prejudice. Yeah, like we're not leaning on uh, either side. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's fair. Sure. Yeah, we're uh, we until hate them this... both equally. <laughs> that's right. I'm uh, I'm a Pete Best man myself, <laughs> and that's uh... that's right. But no, that is a that is a fantastic song. Oh, it's great. Yeah, it's so emotional. Of course, it's, it's about Yoko, like every song written by. Oh, is it about all, Yoko? All I want is you. What is that song about? Don't let me down. What is that song about? I, don't know, I guess I you want to. She's so heavy. Me. What that song? Yeah, goes on and on. Okay, well, you it was just this thing. It was this thing. Sure, sure. He had a thing and he, and he enjoyed it. By the way, on a completely side note, uh, there's an adorable little uh, child singing this song on YouTube. If you're on the YouTube, check oh, that out. Okay. Oh, it's adorable. Nice. Like it's just the littlest kid, and he's he's playing nice. his guitar with his dad. Oh, uh, those of you that know what I'm talking about, once you've heard that version of that song, like this is a good version of this song. That's a better version of the song. Adorbs. That's all I'm saying. All right, and um, the uh, second B. Uh, second B-side is uh, the fantastic, the brilliant, oh. Paul McCartney's favorite Beatles song. Okay. He's on record to saying that. It is on record. All of this material is on a record. You know my name. <laughs> Look up the number. Okay. That is a crazy song. Yeah. Uh, a crazy. Let me let me get out the air quotes. Song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the lyrics being that. Yes. And that's just on a, on a loop in as many crazy ways. Um, well, he, that's how it started. Was just as a, he, I guess John came to Paul and he said, I've got an idea for a song. Yeah. Paul's like, okay, what is it? You know my name. Look up the number. Good line. What's the next line? No, that's it. There's no more lines. We're just going to repeat that line over and over again. Because this was what was, the, uh, with a subtle variation, written actually on phone books at the time. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. Uh, as John would like, you know, read circus posters and exactly. come up with things. Uh, he was inspired. You know, it's like literally, here's the thing. This is what they say. When you're a brilliant actor, you can read the phone book 
and people will be fascinated. They will love it. And, and they took it that extra way. Don't even read the phone book. Read the cover of the phone book. Yeah. And don't even keep going. Just keep reading that same sentence over and over again. And you can make that a B-side to an album. That is, uh, that is Stones, my friend, doing that. This was the B-side to Let It Be, and it was the first Beatles song I heard and fell in love with as a child. Well, now, does this remind you of like a, 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 a Bonzo song? Was it like I wouldn't have known who the Bonzos were at that time, but it just... It tickled. Now, if you listen to... Oh, yeah. yeah would this sure. sound like Bonzo? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it, it just tickled. I mean, obviously, I was pre-programmed to like the Bonzos or like Monty Python or the things that fed into this song. Right. I liked even before I knew what they were, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I took, I borrowed my, I had a, my cousin had this, the single, the picture sleeve for Let It Be. And I, I borrowed it and took it home. And I, all I listened to was, you, you know, my name, look up the number. I didn't really listen to <laughs> Let It Be. I, well, I thought the song was good, but I yeah. much preferred. And at the time, of course, you know, you, everyone liked Ringo. So you wanted to give Ringo things to do because you felt like he was neglected. So my cousin told me that Ringo did all the funny things in the song. So I really, really like Ringo because of that. Yeah. So I was a little disappointed to find out that it was actually Paul and John who did all the funny things in the song. That George and Ringo had actually very little to do with the song. Uh, it basically, it was a composite track of five different takes recorded over a long period of time because it started, once again, just after Sgt. Pepper was finished. They started working on this song. Oh, wow. Okay. So you go all the way back to 67, May of 67, when they started working on it. And they did it over, what, three days? They recorded, they had about 20 minutes of, of stuff, mm-hmm. like just crazy stuff, sound effects and the instrumental tracks and stuff like that. And then, uh, I guess in, in, in 69, April 30, 69, they went, they, uh, they uh, went into it and they, they kind of edited it down to six minutes, six, well, six minutes and eight seconds long. Mm-hmm. That's what they had. And so, yeah, so they had all, everything. And by the way, Brian, Brian Jones, who was, uh, the uh, lead guitar player in the Rolling Stones, he plays alto sax on it. He's the one who does the sax at the end of the song. Oh, okay. Yeah, he does that on saxophone. And it also features, um, so, well, I should say, so what's interesting, the reason that it, it kind of came about the way it happened is it's interesting. So after recording a, a lead guitar overdub for Let It Be, John and Paul, they stayed behind in the studio and their intention was to finish the song. So they added... Um, some more sound effects, uh, with, including Mel, Mel Evans digging in a pile of gravel. Uh-huh. And then, of course, they, they, then they did their voices, they, you know, the kind of uh, that kind of nightclub singing voice, you know, and then the, uh, the sort of blue bottle, blue bottle voice from Goon Show, you know, the, you know, my name, you know, that kind of stuff yeah. like that. Um, that was all added at this, at this session. In, yeah, uh, there was a bunch of Goon, Goon Show-ish stuff in yeah. this one, too. Yeah. April 30th, 1969. This is, when, this is when they did this. Yeah. So, and the reason that they did it was well, John didn't say this to Paul probably, but the reason that John wanted to finish it, finish it, finish it was because he really wanted to release the new uh, what What's the New Mary Jane as a single for the Plastic Ono Band, and his intention was to put uh, You Know My Name, Look Up the Number as the B side. Okay. Because to him, although these songs were both Lennon McCartney, you know, Lennon McCartney compositions, so called, he wrote them and he wanted to release them. So he, so he wanted to put them out as Plastic Ono Band release. So he. Uh, Booked a session and he edited You Know My Name down to like a releasable four minutes and 19 seconds. Mm-hmm. And then he also did some overdubs to What's the New Mary Jane. Strangely, they took the, the two track mix and they, they overdubbed onto that, which is kind of not what you usually normally do. Mm-hmm. But he and Yoko added more, more vocals and added sound effects and stuff to it. And then it was going to be a single. Copies of it were, were pressed 
and it had a and it had a like a, a na- uh, like a, a catalog number apples uh what was it apples 1002 and so it was all it had a release date of december the 5th 1969 it was all going to come out and then nope and the, it's so it, it's possible because emi objected to apple releasing uh, a song that was apple with an emi okay apple you know it was owned by emi through their because it was you know produced in their studio blah 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 it was you know really belonged to them and also i think paul because paul loved that song he wanted to release it as the beatles so he was against releasing it as well i mean like it said yeah. he says it's his favorite song he's not said it more than once that it's his favorite beatles, beatles song which is kind of strange i know <laughs> but I, because to him it's it's about his relationship with john and it's about their goofing around and having yeah, fun together. Yeah, that's probably and uh, the most fun session. And it reflected their their interest in their childhood and the goon yep. show and all that kind of stuff like that, you know, and just having fun. And and so, yeah, so in the end, it came out as a B-side to Let It Be, I sometimes which wish, was the final Beatles single. Yeah, I sometimes wish that the the two of them could have just done a comedy album together. Like, just like done a Bonzo style. Look, we're just going to like make them all, <laughs> all, yeah, just have some fun. Yeah. You know, it's like, uh, put, put your serious pants away and let's just... Uh, just goof around. Well, they did talk about that. I remember we when we talked about Rubber Soul that yeah. they were going to do like a, an album with jokes. The songs would have like a punchline to them. Right. So Drive My Car has a punchline at the the woman does actually doesn't have a car, but when she does, this guy can drive it. You know, or Norwegian Wood ending with the guy absolutely burning down. So but I even mean, even more so, you know, and it feels right like when you see yeah, and also you see their films and they they much broader comedy in in their films than in in the uh, songs themselves. Yeah. But again, that's on Earth too, where things were different. <laughs> you know. And there's For infinite sure. universes, probably, and uh, where podcasts are, when podcasts are shorter. Yes, yes, podcasts are shorter. Listen, we know you have the ability to turn this off anytime you want, so you made the choice to listen to us the, this whole, <laughs> and we do appreciate it. Um, the funny thing is, you know, when you look at it, how long it is. I do not while doing it. I'm uh, experiencing this in real time. Uh, That's right. But uh, we have fun doing this. We hope you have fun listening to it. Uh, if you want to comment on anything, if you think mm-hmm. we've uh, been correct or incorrect or anything you want to say, uh, sneakydragon.com is our website. Uh, please post on our message board there. We're also on Facebook. We're also on Twitter at sneaky underscore dragon. Uh, we're on all the things that people are on now. Yes. Except for the things that we're not so yes. there For, we're not on foursquare we're not on we're not on any of those things we're not on yeah i was gonna list pinterest all, yeah we're not on any of those things we're not on tinder we're not on those kind of things because we're happily married men yes tinders uh but yes we love to hear from you there also if you want to go on to itunes and uh give us a review tell us our shows are too long yeah you can tell us our shows are too long you wouldn't be the first you won't be the last. Uh, that's that's fine. Be go on there and uh, and be honest. That's that's absolutely fine. Uh, we appreciate it and it helps people to find the show. Please tell your friends about the show. And uh, that's about it. Uh, we'll be back within two weeks. Not within two weeks. It'll be exactly two weeks. Yes. Uh, with our final album episode. Boy, I'm so I'm gonna I'm gonna miss the show when it's gone. Yeah. And what album will that be, David? That will be Abbey Road. Very good. And the then last a- Beatles album. And then afterwards, we're gonna do our final uh, show. No, that's not our final show. Unless, unless you know something I don't know. Uh, and uh, then we're going to do the uh, movies, and then we're going to uh, do kind of a question uh, question and answer 
I think so. So yeah, with that in mind. With that in uh, completely in mind, uh, feel free to send us any of your questions or comments or things that you thought we should have discussed on past episodes and maybe we missed out on. Yeah, maybe we glossed over something that you were interested in and you'd like us to explore further. Right. Some of you have been doing that, and we appreciate that. We'll be looking at those. But yeah, if there's something that uh, should be covered or you thought again we got wrong, uh, especially something David got wrong, I appreciate that a little bit more. Uh, please, uh, please let us know. And until until that time, uh, go listen to some some Beatles. And uh, I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. And we appreciate your ears. All you need is ears. <laughs> That's right.